podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome everyone to Nesson Dorma, our latest episode. It's been 25 years since arguably the greatest game in Premier League history, so we're here to chat about it. It's no great secret, it's Liverpool 4, Newcastle 3, sorry for the spoiler. But uh, it's, it, we'll talk about the game, we'll talk about whether it is one of the best, uh, whether it is the best Premier League game in history, I suppose, and what our memories of it are. And in our own special way, I'm Lee, as you know, and joining me as per usual is Mr. Mike Gibbons. Hello, Mike. Evening, Lee. How you doing? Very good, thank you. Um, and also joining, well, joining us tonight for the first time this series, Gary Nail is not with us, which uh, I hope you won't miss him too much. But joining us like a sort of UN special rapporteur is our uh, friend and author of the title, the history of the, of the Division One title. It's Scott Murray. Hello, Scott. Hey there, Lee. How are you? I'm fine. I mangled the title of your book completely there. Do you want to tell the listeners what it actually is? No, no. The t- title sounds like the, the title to oh, me. Simple as that. Yeah. There you yeah. go. If you want to get in touch with us, uh, we are at Nessundorma Pod on the Twitter. Uh, you can find me at Blood and Mud on Twitter, but I say this every week. That's a rugby account that I use for my rugby stuff. So by all means, come along. But you you might be upset by the lack of 90s and 80s football. But by all means, do come along. How do people get in touch with you, Mike? Uh, well, if you want to get me on Twitter, um, I'm well, on the rare occasions I'm on these days, it's uh, at Mike W. Gibbons. And do, do you do social media, Scott? Or are, you, are you a sensible person and stay well away from it? No, no, no social media for me. People just shout at me in the street. <laughs> they need to get in touch. So not that different then? No, yeah. no. Just different sort of abuse. Uh, we're on Acast. We're on Apple Podcasts. We're on anywhere you want to put. You want to find us, really. And also, most importantly, we're on patreon.com slash Dormer, and we don't carry on doing anything until we give some thanks to the people who give us some help before i get into that i just want to make a point to to people because i don't think it's about how you listen if you're on patreon because some people i think we've i've heard it not sure how that works but basically when you join the patreon and become one of our supporters you actually get sent a private rss feed which means you can listen to the podcast in the usual way using that rss feed and you don't have to download the patreon app or listen on the patreon app because, well, not to put too fine a point in it, the Patreon app is bobbins for listening to things. So you're better off, uh, you can actually, if you download the Patreon app, it actually gives you a, an opportunity to listen elsewhere and load the RSS somewhere else. So don't worry about losing your normal way of listening. If you want to join, you get a private RSS and you can just as easily listen to us in exactly the same way, but without ads and with extra episodes and knowing that you're supporting us and helping us to keep going. We have two um, tiers you can join in the Patreon. We've got a £5 tier where you get your name read out in here, and we've got a £10 tier where we have a go at trying to give you a 80s and 90s football biography. So first of all, in the £5 tier recently, and thank you very much to all of these people, Ben Aspinall, Justin, MJ Corrigan, Paul Luckley, and Bill Juniper. Thank you so much for giving your support. It means a hell of a lot. It means we can keep going and have wonderful guests like Scott on as well. And then in the £10 section this month, 
first of all, we've got... Well, it says here Ronald Bride, but I'm choosing it to be Ronald Breeder. Ronald Breeder played 176 times as a right-back for Crystal Palace. He also had 121 caps for Norway between 1985 and 2001, scoring once. It was an own goal. <laughs> so that's Ronald Breeder. And Mike, who've you got? Uh, I've got Dominic, uh, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, Huffham. So it's H-O-U-G-H-A-M. See, it's trouble. The English language, say Huffham, it could be Howham, couldn't it? It could be Hewham. But go with what yeah, you've got. Right? We, get, we get the luxury of making it up, so go. Well, yeah, I suppose if the rest of it's made up. Exactly. Yeah, uh, yeah, Dominic Huffman. So, uh, yeah, a welterweight playmaker from the Tottenham Academy. Uh, England under-21 international and two-on tournament stalwart of the late 80s and early 90s. And cursed uh, with the term future England captain in his young career. Uh, never got the full honours, but crafted a decent career as a goal-scoring midfielder with no requirement to track back at all under uh, Venables and Ardiles. Uh, shipped out to Forest in the mid-90s, where he stayed for the rest of his career as they began the process of yo-yoing between the Premier League and the Championship. Uh, and his claim to fame is he won goal of the month in January 96 with a booming 25-yard drive past Kevin Pressman, which everyone thinks was deflected, but he he claims came uh, clean off his laces and flew into the top corner, clean true. So that's Dominic Huffman. Thank you very much, Mike. Thank you, Dominic. Finally, we've got, and I, see, I don't know what it is about Spurs that makes you attract, it makes us attracted to it, but I've gone for, for Spurs with this one as well. So we've got Chris Thompson. Thank you, Chris, for, for your support. I've got simply, Chris came through the youth setup at Spurs in 1997 and was touted as the next Vinnie Samways, which he ended up being, so very few people actually remember him. <laughs> Probably being unfair to both Chris and Vinnie Samways there, but there you go. So thank you, Chris. Thank you, Ronald. And thank you, Dominic. And thank you, everybody who gives us their support on the Patreon. That's the admin out the way. It's patreon.com slash if you want to sign up. And don't forget, you get your own private RSS so you continue listening in the way you would like to. So don't worry about that. Now, before we get to Newcastle and everything else that goes with it and Liverpool, we always have a player of the pod, as you know. And this week we've gone... Way back, well, his career starts before our time, but he he finishes very much in our time. And we're having a chat about the Brazilian legend that is Socrates. Mike, you were uh, keen to talk about Socrates, I think. What do we we want to start talking about? Well, well, where do you start? I mean, well, (laughs) from the era, I I guess, that we we dedicate our um, pod to, he's... One of the most iconic players, I suppose, globally. I would say certainly in the eighties, and I, you know, he captained one of the great romantic teams of all time. You know, the the Brazil team in nineteen eighty two, and uh, when you add everything in with Socrates, I think the style of play, that kind of scruffy, uh, beat poet look he had, you know, <laughs> the, the beard and everything, the the fact he could play that gracefully with a you know six foot four quite wiry frame you know he's a prodigious smoker and a drinker as well you know he advises a lot of people in the rest of the world have yet was still a world-class footballer outside of that you know he's very heavily involved in you know politics as well he's he's maybe this is a 43 year old man now defining what cool is but he's possibly the coolest footballer 
of all time. I'd say him and Cruyff are maybe the apex of that kind of thing because everything about him sort of screams that he shouldn't be a football you know he should be a you know a weather-beaten philosophy lecturer in a university (laughs) or something like that but um just very uh you know very enigmatic and yet and and captain the team that you know went close to the world cup but um you know was a victim of its own principles in a lot of ways and you know keeping piling forward and attacking so uh had that kind of uh, undercurrent of, um, you know, he's a dreamer, and it, you know, it ended in a, it ended in a kind of bittersweet way for him. But uh, yeah, definitely, uh, uh, certainly the eighties. I think he's one of the most iconic players of that decade. I'd say. You always think, don't you, with players when you look back on because most of his career was spent with me being quite us. I think all of us being relatively young, so you don't have a lot of at the time memories but because like you said he is so iconic you always have this kind of view that he's to the manner born with international football don't you but actually he came in quite late he made his, he made his debut at 25 basically mm. and then played his late 20s into you know the 82 he was 27 but was installed as captain straight away in 1980 um so it's you always imagine he's a bit like all these other Brazilian legends that they suddenly rocked up at at eighteen and he was so talented he was he was picked but that wasn't the case was it? Yeah, that's what's a, actually well, early on in his career as well. He, he was studying medicine at the same time. Yes, which um, so he's a qualified. I forgot to mention it. He's a qualified doctor as well. Um, which still smoked like a you know, chimney. Disgraceful. Yeah, yeah. But the, you know, but there's a work ethic needed to be a doctor, which when you see him on the pitch, you just, you, just think, you know, how how did you like manage to nail down a career in medicine at the same time? So I, th- I think that's something behind the reason he was a late bloomer. I think um, as well. Also, I mean, and uh, but the sheer volume of quality players they turned out as well. Then I think would you know would maybe. Uh, maybe not get you in there straight. Also, he started his career out as a striker as well. He wasn't a midfielder for the first um, uh, years of his professional career, and then he dropped back in. And then it's when Tele Santana became Brazil manager, really, that he um, became so prominent because he, he almost immediately made him the captain. Um, and, uh, yeah, but, but because he played most of his club career in Brazil, um hmm. You know, people in Europe would have young boy unless you read World Soccer then or something. You you wouldn't know that much about him until you actually saw him at the World Cup. Yeah, he didn't come. He didn't. I mean, I think that's on, Scott, you know, even if he even if he wasn't a late bloomer in the Brazilian team or in his career, that's exactly the point. In the UK, we would never have heard of him. Very few people would have. And it's one of the great lost lost. Um, things about the world cup is um it's like i i it it, it never yeah i, I always thought it was i, I called it the josimar murdoch law of diminishing returns <laughs> and what it is it states that the increased knowledge of international football provided satellite technology is in inverse proportion to the chances of us ever experiencing that thrill of just, wow, who is this guy? I've never heard of him before. And suddenly he's the best player at the World Cup. <laughs> you know, we never got that with 
you know, Ronaldo or Messi, we, you know, Zidane, because we knew who they were already. Socrates just came, bang, and it's like, oh my God, never seen anything like that. And that's a, that, that's a big loss. And I think that's one of the reasons why that, especially the 82 Brazil team, but also the 86 one, I think it's one of the reasons why they're beloved. And Socrates was the, was the totem of that. Yeah, and it's it's um, memories of the kind of player he was as well as as coming out of nowhere. I was trying to think because obviously you know you've I've seen lots of him since then in clips and and watching games back and and because you're supposed to say he's brilliant. And I was trying to remember what I rem- what I could put my finger on from when he was actually playing. What stuck in my mind the most? I knew he smoked loads because people always talked about that. And the other thing was the way he took penalties. That was the thing that most stuck in my mind was that kind of chop, chop way he took penalties. Yeah, he had that one-step uh, penalty techno. The first time I saw it was the 86 World Cup. So that's that's the first World Cup I remember. Maybe that's why that sticks in my head because I was trying to think of what is it about him I remember the most. And yeah. one thing for, as a child that lodged in my cortex somewhere was that, that one step that again looks so unusual because you just, I don't remember seeing many people doing it yeah. on the big match. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's great. And he was also, he was, um, you know, he was wearing a headband and things then. And that's the kind of thing that, you know, Ed Moses and John McEnroe did. You had to be, uh, you know, some kind of sportsman to be able to uh, to pull that look off. But um, yeah, the 86 World Cup, I remember. He was, so he's 32 by then. So his his big announcement to the world would have been in, 82 obviously when he was um 28 and i remember through the 86 world cup all the commentators kept back referencing this brazilian team from four years earlier mm. but you know you, you didn't have a youtube to go to talk well what are they talking about and then um there's a there's a i think for our generation i don't know if you had this uh as well but um there's a quite influential video cassette called uh the boys from brazil it was a bbc tape and it was basically all the Brazilian teams from the World Cup in chopped up into little highlights and I've got that just after this World Cup uh, when they released it and um, you know you could see I saw first time the 82 team then and you know how good Socrates was and how good she used to back it and things like that and uh, and he's, he's involved in heavily involved in two of the greatest internationals of all time which is the Brazil Italy game from 82 and the uh, the Brazil France game, the the famous eighty six World Cup quarter final, and it, it's in that that it comes unstuck. Actually, his penalty, he tries to replicate the same penalty that he'd done against Poland, and uh, and Joel Batts saves it. And uh, and in in both cases, they're two amazing games, and and Brazil come down on the wrong the wrong side of them. And it's effectively the second one, the France game. It's effectively the end of the Joga Benito. Uh, you know, Brazil here, other than it being, you know, a kind of marketing term for Nike and uh, things like that at future World Cups, it was um, it was never quite the same after that. So he's, um, he, I think he represents something in that sense as well. You know, the, one of the last standard bearers of that uh, that whole thing. Socrates is in here. It's, oh, it's there. Socrates scores a goal that sums up the philosophy of Brazilian football. Santana got sacked or his um his departure was announced 
at, um, at half time of the Hand of God game. Mm. And that just sort of that whole thing, the 86 book, that just felt like a pivotal moment. It was kind of the end of it was the end of that era of this carefree Brazil. And it was sort of, you won't get much more out of Maradona and Argentina either because it would be very different at the 90 World Cup. Although very funny, but but that's another <laughs> that's another story. Um, yeah, and it was just, but 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 that that Brazilian team of the eighties is is at least the equal of legend of the nineteen seventy Brazilian team, and in some respects, I would argue more so, kind of because of that failure. There's something slightly, well. You know, it's just not quite as romantic when the you know when the greatest team wins. I guess there's a lot that depends very much how you know you look at football, your own personal take on it. But I kind of like that slightly um, bittersweet story. <laughs> um, there's just something I don't know. There's just something more special about it. And that '82 team was just you know it was just everything in the the way that the you know, it was in Spain. It was incredibly hot um, month. The everything looked hazy. The colours were almost psychedelic, and there was Socrates just standing tall in the middle of all this. You know, with with half of the Russian team chasing after him, it's like a Benny Hill sketch. <laughs> and then he like whips the ball into the into the into the net from like absurd absurd range. Socrates found the angle. Oh, it's a Magnificent goal. That's just beautiful. So I, I think there's you mentioned in passing before, Mike, his kind of um, his stance against the dictatorship while he was at Corinthians, mm. um, and it was a white, you know, because there was a dictatorship one at the at the club and two in the country. I mean, it's it, it's it's easy. I don't know that much about the history of these things. However, you'd have to think that dictatorships aren't that asked about murdering people, are they? So, for him to kind of stand up and make a point about this, however big a person he was, yeah, says so much. You know, it, is that really his his biggest lasting legacy that we should all remember, rather than the fact that you know he smoked too much and was probably the original person they used the term good touch for a big man about um him being six foot three. Is is uh well possibly. I mean I I don't really feel qualified no, to talk indeed. on that really. Yeah. Not not being a not being a Brazilian, but I mean it's <laughs> Or a historian. Uh, you know, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I've got got a history degree, that's what I've you know. Oh well but, sorry. Um <laughs> Yes. Specifically about the military dictatorships of oh, yeah. the eighties, yeah, yeah, that's an enormous blind spot. Um, <laughs> it's yeah, I mean, I I don't know, but I mean, you, I mean, it is out there, you know. He did use his, you know, considerable platform uh, as a footballer to speak out for free elections in Brazil at a time when, um, you know, they weren't happening, and uh, you know, this is this is before social media and this is not like so it's not like a retweet or it's not like a 
you know a brand endorsed thing or anything like that you know he actually went out into a you know a main square in um in uh in sao paulo i think um and spoke out to a massive crowd about this um and you know footballers you know use their platforms now a lot uh some of them in you know in in brilliant ways to uh you know pressurize governments you know we've seen that in the last in our own country in the last uh last year or so um but to yeah to as you say to speak out like that against a regime like that as well in a, in a country that was wrong like that it's um you know you you can't but take your hat off to him for that i don't think and then obviously part of this huge team what's the story about him playing for garth garforth united where does this come into it into the equation garforth town even Oh, this was uh, this is a bit of a gimmick um, thing. But I so said Garforth Town at the time were run by a guy called Simon Clifford, who um, he set up um, like Brazilian soccer academies um, in the UK. Oh, I remember got... this guy, the, the the futsal thing, where you played yeah, with a yeah, smaller so... ball on a short pitch, and you know you didn't have a parent on the side shouting "Get under him" and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Instead. <laughs> Yeah, and it's um, they've been really successful actually. And they've sort of been set up in the UK in the last twenty. And you know, there's nothing like that here before. And um, he's quite an entrepreneurial guy. I think. So he's ha- he had all these business links in Brazil, and um, he bought Garforth, and he had these big ambitions for them and everything. So they played in the North Northern Counties East Football League, I think. And um, but he he brought over. I, th- I think he did it with Junior, and I think with Careca as well. Right. That he, he coaxed Socrates out of retirement to play in a game in Garforth in November, you know, when it's freezing. <laughs> and uh, Socrates. Can, can he do it on a Tuesday in Garforth in November? Well, yeah. But yeah, I, I, and he, he he did say, like, what a fan he was of that team and everything. Like, I don't know. I, I, I thought there was something quite sad about this, really. Because obviously, in his older years as well, he's, he was in quite ailing health, Socrates. Mm. I mean, he, he, he died at 57. Um, due to complications with his health. And um, I don't know, what do people expect when they wheel 50-year-old players out for things like this? Um, you know, what, do you think you're going to get a goal like the USSR? <laughs> Again, in the Northern Cup? I just, I find it quite sad, really, that what he was asked. Any... So... Sorry, just Scott. Had that sort of, uh, no, I was just going to say, just had that wheeze of, um, or that aura of like a sort of Tim Lovejoy wheeze. Like yeah. a bit, oh. like a bit of banter. Kind it was of just ways. like, oh, we've you know we've heard of Socrates, but we don't know why he's why we've heard of him. So isn't it just funny for like this once, uh, you know, this former Brazilian king to be pictured under a you know under a travelling rug in the dugout, and it just yeah, I'm 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 with you on that, Mike. It just you know I hope he got paid well for it. <laughs> Um, and I'm sure he didn't. He didn't give a fuck. But yeah, it's yeah. There's just something that's like you know, like he doesn't deserve to be like a lot of people. That'll be their the first thing that'll spring into to mind with Socrates. It's a bit um, yeah. It's just a wee shame, you know. Yeah, that's the sad thing about because the you know the 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 final image is often the most lasting. I remember someone saying this in respect of um, Elvis once. It's like all, all Elvis impersonators pick the Vegas years when they pay, um, yeah. you know, where, where they dress up and do tribute and stuff like that. But um, 
Yeah, it's one, one thing I don't like, well, one of the many things I don't like about football is these kind of banter chairmen who have these, you know, <laughs> wheezes to get an extra thousand on the gate and stuff like that. And um, even if Socrates was happy to do it, you know, he doesn't strike me as the kind of guy who would be told what to do by other people. I think, you know, if if you're the fan of him, you say you are, and, you know, you revere him because of 82, well, you know, let that be the memory then and don't, you know, Mm. sit him on a bench where he's clearly freezing cold and clearly not in very good health and then just shove him out for 10 minutes. You know, I just, yeah, I just, I didn't like that. He's got a kind of feeling of... um... You know, a once fan- I know this is a ridiculous comparison, but a once fantastic sort of big time wrestler who has to, who's forced to come out of retirement to fight in some horrible leisure centre in Hereford or something because yeah. it is because because <laughs> they need to get the gate up. And I know that's a ridiculous comparison. It's the, it's the one that kind of jumps into my mind though, because actually you expect that in wrestling. You don't expect it of a footballing great like this. But as you said, the weird well, thing is that he agreed. Sorry, Scott, go on. Well, I was uh, just, it's also a bit like Donna Stale when he used to crop up in, uh, with his little pith helmet on, singing Whispering Grass in <laughs> centres across the, up and down the UK. It's like the Shiine kind of, kind of Festival like in, uh, really. in Butlin's Minehead every year. Have you seen that <laughs> runs every year with all the worst dregs of Britpop being uh, thrown oh, in there on the weekend? With a lot of geography teachers who've not been out since 1999. Mm. <laughs> but yeah, it's, a bit, it's it's kind of sad, isn't it, really? But the um, um, yeah, but to speak about happier transfers, I suppose, and, and playing, a, he did a year in Italy. I thought he did longer in Italy. So when we started looking at this, that um, because he's kind of, I suppose, outside of Brazil, his his reputation is part of the, as you said, Mike, the cool thing, the glorious mm. failure, like you've said, Scott, as well. Um, but then, and then also the World Cup. I think because that was so big, I thought it was more than just a World Cup. But it was actually, it was, it was just a one season with Fiorentina, wasn't it? Seems weird that it took so long to come and get him, isn't it, Serie A? Because they weren't shy at that period either. No, I, yeah, guess, I guess he was just just getting on a wee bit by then. That's true. Yeah. I just want to, yeah. I, I, I just want to caveat the 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 word failure uh, because I think yeah, it, yeah, this applies to Socrates and it it were. were I think it's fair to say we're going to touch upon it in a while when we talk about Newcastle and Roy Evans Liverpool. Um, but I only use the word failure in the sense that they didn't win a trophy. Yeah. Because I like, because Socrates is just one of the greats in the stuff he produced on the world stage. I mean, that's as, you know, that's as big a success as you like. And I mean, you know, he's he's going to be remembered, you know, long after, you know, World Cup winner Stefan Guivarsh. Um, is forgotten, and it's the same with Keegan's Newcastle. Although we'll we'll get onto that, I'm sure. Siri Atom. Yeah, it's um, that's a good point. That yeah, I used. Sorry, both, yeah, but no, no, you're just, right. We both use the word failure because it's an easy phrase to trot out, isn't it? But actually, the fact we're talking about it now, and the fact that so many people talk about that, particularly the '82 Brazil team, in such a way, it cannot possibly be a failure, can it? Because that's all people. When people think about the best football mm-hmm. you'd like to see, it's that team. And yeah, they didn't win a trophy, but really, does anybody talk about who lifted a trophy, yeah. really? You tend to talk about the stuff that moves you emotionally, don't you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, it's like um, with Keegan in Newcastle, although I'm 
probably getting a wee bit ahead of myself. It's fine. But I think the same year, this game uh, was it. Aston Villa won the League Cup, <laughs> and I mm. can't even remember. It was Brian Little, I think, was manager then. And no one talks about mm. Brian Little's Aston Villa, but they won something. Uh, Kevin Keegan's Newcastle won bugger all, but you know, I know who I'd rather be. What I remember most about Brian Little is he always wore shorts when he was managing. He always had small white shorts on. I don't know why that's, again, things that stick in your mind. He was always in shorts, it's not, it seemed. It's not correct, is it? It's no, it simply isn't. No, it's not, it's, not, it's not the British. Some people don't, their legs just don't get cold, though, they tell me. Hmm. Anything else on Socrates, Mike? Uh, yeah, I'll just want to touch on is Fiorentina. Mm. Oh, yes, yeah, so that's what we started quickly. talking about. Yeah, um, yeah so that, uh, that summer of 1984 with this rush of transfers in Serie A, where I think there's some kind of transfer ban coming in for two years um, where, where clubs couldn't buy overseas players. Um, I, I, don't, I can't remember the reasons for it. but um, So basically, that, that was 16-team league then. And you were allowed two overseas players in each side. And um, they dig around recruiting the very best players in the world. So that, that summer, Ruminiger went to Inter Milan. Uh, Maradona's obviously the big one. He went to Napoli. Uh, Prebenalke went to Verona. Graham Sunas, captain of the European champions, went to Sampdoria. Um, and Socrates went to Fiorentina. So they they finished ninth and he scored nine in... 33, which is a very good return in that league because it's you know, still a mm. lot harder to score. And just that ninth might not sound a lot in that league, but I think in the context of how difficult it was and the quality of players that went there, I mean, Z- Zico was already there and he was at Udinese, uh, for example. Mm. Um, and, you know, <clears throat> Zibi, Boniek and Putini were the two... Um, uh, the two foreign imports into Juventus. Laudrup signed for Juventus, but had to go on loan to Lazio to get a game. Um, it was just, it's like the NFL that week. It just, you know, it's this, this, um, it just had all these best players, and every Sunday that they would just, you know, uh, you know, have it out for the title kind of thing. That the title that year was actually won by uh, Elkiar's uh, Verona. So, um, yeah. It, Looking at it at a glance, it might seem like he didn't, you know, really achieve much while he was there for that one year. But um, yeah, a good return in terms of what he did personally. And also, um, from what you hear, his um, his lifestyle and regime didn't exactly jive with um, the demand for discipline in Serie A. From what you hear, um, <laughs> and uh, the, the the other the other overseas player with it, who was also at Fiorentina, was Daniel Passarella, who. Um, I think has a slightly different work ethic to. I was going to say, yeah. In terms at least, of he, at least, at least like Socrates. Well, I don't know what what, how, what length was Socrates' hair at Fiorentina, and what was Passarella's yeah. role in that? Was it, it was Passarella yeah. who made all the Argentinian team cut their hair, wasn't it, when he was manager? Yeah, yeah, yeah. For the '98 World Cup, yeah, yeah. Well, one final thing I'd end on in Socrates actually is just um, just the name itself. I mean, uh, you know, Socrates. It's almost like you're predestined to be. <laughs> you know, a, you know, a cerebral, um, you know, superbly talented, deep-thinking footballer, isn't it? When I actually, just to let the listeners in on the, the magic of research, when, when we decided we were going to do Socrates, I put his name into Wikipedia, 
And uh, I was actually surprised when the search result just kicked back the philosopher. I was like, oh, yeah, that guy. <laughs> <laughs> I was just expecting the football. That tells you a lot about how I live my life, I suppose. I just expected the football with a bounce up as the, the first result. But What's that Greek oh, yeah, yeah, the guy, right? oh, he was Yeah, the, you know, just the cornerstone of a lot of Western philosophy. <laughs> was he seen as a glorious failure as well? Maybe that's how it links them together. <laughs> okay, so that's our little ramble through our memories of, of of Socrates. I think we'll probably the last words kind of go to him, I suppose. Um, he said, "I am an anti-athlete. I cannot deny myself certain lapses from the strict regime of a sportsman. You have to take me as I am." He says, and I think the thing is, people who love all the people who are loved in football the most are all a little, have a little bit of that in them, don't they? Rightly or wrongly, Scott. Yeah, absolutely. The the arrogance of, you know, that sort of, you know, your destiny is to be a great footballer. What you actually achieve is a completely, you know, different <laughs> thing. But, but, but you know, Sir Eric Cantona was always going to go his own way. Someone like Socrates would do that. Gaza, you know, um, Ronaldo, you know, for all his for all his faults, you know, you have. Um, you just, uh, yeah, you just have that sense. You know, all the best players, it manifests itself in different ways, of course. Hmm. But all, all the best players had some of that, didn't they? Indeed. And that's why we love them. So that was Socrates and our memory of those, uh, of him. Let us know what your memories are at Ness and Pod or have you on the Patreon. You can message us on there as well. So let's get to the kind of main course of the episode then. Liverpool 4, Newcastle 3, which is 25 years ago this month. Let's not dwell on that too much, shall we? Um, um, Often talked about as one of the greatest Premier League games of all time in one of the greatest seasons we can remember, I suppose, maybe. Well, again, we'll get to to all of that. Before we get to the game itself... um, What's the kind of quick potted history, Mike, on where this season was up to come April and what had happened in, the, in a couple of months before? Right, well, so at the, the point game was played, um, so the title was still in Newcastle's hands at this point, but they had let a nine-point lead slip, um, which they had over Man United since the... Uh, end of February. They they lost to United at St. James's Park at the start of March. Uh, and then they went on a bit of a wobbly run over five games. Can, where, can we um, just dwell on that game for a second? I know it's not the same game. But yeah. talk about a smashing grab, the way that game was. It, was it How many shots on target did, did Newcastle have that were all repelled before Cantona? That was the game Cantona legged up at the end of the pitch and nicked it, wasn't it? Yes, yes. So I, think, I think they had five shots on target in the first... 20 minutes I think um, unbelievable which just required some heroics from um, you know Schmeichel to keep out I think they hit the bar as well um, and yeah they, they did look like they were uh, going to overwhelm United and um, and yet in that... <laughs> and yeah but um, yeah I think I think the thing about well, the season it... to say Jen... sorry Scott go on I, no, I, was ju- I was just to say that what in that game although I'm sure we'll get on to him a bit later, um, Faustino Espria, you know, he was the one just teeing up all these, all these chances that mm. um, Newcastle either squandered or Schmeichel somehow kept out. 
but that's just one of the small points about Esprit that I think people forget, but I'm sure we'll expand on that. <laughs> yeah, indeed. What I would say about the season was it, it felt like English football, the top of English football, was up for grabs, really. So um, Ferguson's first United team had been disbanded, effectively, the previous summer. Um, you know, Conchelskis and Instant Hughes left, and, you know, it's the well-worn story of, you know, the kids, and you can't win anything with kids. And that was all, you know, United would go on to win the double this season, but that was still, those decisions were still in the process of, of being validated, I guess. And um, it felt like there was a kind of void at the top of English football, I suppose, that could be filled. I mean, because Blackburn were defending champions, but Dalgleish had left um, pretty soon after, and they hadn't, uh, they'd, well, they conducted a kind of flimsy defence of the title. Um, and Newcastle before Christmas were, um, were brilliant and up until, you know, looked like they were going to run away with it. And I think it's important to point out how well Newcastle had um, recovered from the sale of Andy Cole um, just over a, about a year and a bit um, before. And, you know, they bought Ferdinand and they bought Genoa and they, you know, they'd reshoot the the team and had been slowly building towards a kind of proper definitive title challenge for quite a few seasons. Um, and Liverpool the same as well, I think, since um, since Graham Souness' departure. Um and, you know, uh, Roy Evans um, took over and he, he had the emergence of uh, Robbie Fowler and they bought uh, bought Stan Collymore. And um, so it felt like this season, I think, that the title was, it was kind of there. It was like, the, if you want to call it the perch, it felt like the perch, <laughs> you know, w- w- was there for someone to um, to go and occupy, I think. Um, you know, it, it hadn't become the kind of, I guess United takeover that the nineties is, um, I guess largely remembered mm. for. So um, yeah, United had nicked ahead at this point, but before this game kicked off, Newcastle had two games in hand on United, and they were three points behind. Um, Liverpool were, I think, I think they were eight behind United with a game in hand, but um, they they lost their previous league game to this, I think, against um, Nottingham Forest. Uh, which are, which are kind of dented. I think they'd been on a run of about sort of twenty-one unbeaten games uh, before that, and they they qualified for the FA Cup final as well. Um, and they they'd had this brilliant run in the spring where it felt like Robbie Fowler was scoring two wonder goals a game uh, for the entire month of March, and he'd made his England debut and everything. And uh, so I, I would say this this the meeting of these two teams, Newcastle and Liverpool, it felt a perfectly timed meeting between two. You know, to just really attractive, brilliant team like the entertainers at Newcastle. What who who we would come on to call the Spice Boy, uh, Liverpool. Two of the most memorable teams of the decade. Um, and uh, yeah, that that was the sort of scene really as uh, as we were going into the game. What are your memories of that period, Scott? That Liverpool team was. Was another, well, you're a Liverpool fan, aren't you? So, but it was, you know, yeah. we've we've done the Spice Boys episode, but I suppose were you feeling it was a coming thing? Um, yes and no. It was a strange one. I think, um, you, you know, the way Mike describes it is this sort of, you know, it was a perfect storm 
for a match like this for three to happen, just the way everything was set up. Everything was quite combustible. And I think Liverpool, I mean, everyone says it about this Newcastle side, that they were like, everything was like, um, you know, everything was in the red. The the pedal was pressed completely to the floor and you knew that it was either going to be brilliant or it would be like a terrible, <laughs> terrible crash. Um, but I think the same is kind of true of, of that Roy Evans Liverpool side. It always felt just on the verge of overheating that just as easily as they could go. I mean, there was a game and I can't remember whether it was the Premiership game or the Cup game against Villa when Liverpool went three up in about minutes. And it was just the most like, blistering start to a match. And it did nothing for like the next 85 or whatever. And that was kind of, you didn't quite know what you were going to get with Liverpool. You didn't quite know what you were going to get with Newcastle. And so in retrospect, they were always like, it was always going to just not quite happen for them. But both really went for it trying. And I think that Roy Evans side probably should have won the league the year after. Um, in the end, like what do you, he won one league cup, mm. and it's it's sort of it's kind of a bit of a scant return for you know potential that was there. But yeah, it was never. It felt good, but it never felt like you know inevitable, or you know there was never a real confidence that they were going to get over the line, I don't think. I would, if, there's another podcast called Under the Cosh, if anyone's listened to it. And uh, the John Beresford episode is, is very is worth listening to because it's got some hilarious stuff in there, although some of it is it gets a bit laddish, but it's it's still worth listening to because it's funny. But uh, um, he talks about Newcastle and how he... I didn't realise that he nearly signed for Liverpool before going to Newcastle. You may know that, Scott, but... Um, no, I didn't know. Yeah, he was soon as phoned him and said, "Come and have a medical." You know, we want, we want you. I think that was when he was that when he left City. I can't. Or, or anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, Portsmouth, I think he left Portsmouth, and he went to Liverpool, and they realised he'd broken an ankle, and said, "Sorry, I can't sign you because you've got to be clean bill of health." And he was absolutely devastated, and he went back to Jim Smith at Portsmouth. He said, "Don't worry, because there's somebody else wants you. It's Keegan at Newcastle. They hadn't been promoted then." And apparently Beresford phoned him. And he said, look, I just want to be straight with you. Liverpool haven't signed me because um, I failed their medical. <laughs> and Keegan apparently mm. said, oh, don't worry about that. He said, I've just signed Paul Bracewell. You'll piss our medical. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think kind of sums up everything around <laughs> the way that, that club was, was entered. You know, it's basically, yeah, don't. I'd probably Keegan just telling the, the doctors to just not do their job, I suppose, and... In, in one way or another. But Beresford also says about this Newcastle team, and we'll come on to this, but he says, he said, people don't believe me when I tell them because they think I'm exaggerating to like make a joke. He said, but it is absolutely true that in the whole time I was there, we never once did a session on shape, on what shape we were playing, who we were picking up. Not once ever did we do it. And he said, in team talks used to be, he used to get, Keegan would get the team sheet of the opposition and basically look at it for about 10 seconds and then just rip it up and just go, that looks like absolute shit. If you're not 2-0 up in, mm -hmm. in 20 minutes, then I don't know what's wrong with you. 
I mean, that's straight out the uh, that's straight out the Bill Shankly play. Well, that's that. exactly what I was just about mm-hmm. to say, Scott. Yeah, and he said apparently oh, it sorry. is a Shankly <laughs> thing. He reckons he's no, you're right. No, I'm, I'm glad you've picked up on it because that's that's exactly apparently it was a Shankly thing. That one of the things obviously Keegan played for him for years, and there is something about Keegan, something that sums that up about one that whole thing about the medical. Don't worry, I want you. Forget the rules, sort of thing. I don't work on shape. And then the other thing is this motivational thing I learned in 1974. Let's just keep <laughs> doing that. Do you know what I mean? It's, and yet, look at where we are. You know, we we, taught, we we did a lot. We did a huge, you know, session on Keegan and about his leadership style in the England Keegan episode. For those of you who haven't listened to it yet, it's it's a few episodes ago this series. Um, but just listening to that really kind of pulled out to me this kind of mixture that he had, and yet he still created this even with. What, what 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 any leadership approach would say is total madness, really. <laughs> well, he also had that like uh, again something that he'll have probably picked up from from Shankly. He 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 did have that knack of the Messiah. He could do that for Newcastle fans. Newcastle yeah. fans loved him. And I remember when he like talking to a couple of Toon fans um, when Keegan came back the second time in what would have been about 2010 or something something like that, around about that time, mm. for a very brief period. And all of the sort of commentary at in the punditocracy were sort of laughing and mocking and going, ah, this is like destined for failure, which, you know, which of course it was. But it kind of missed the point that these Toon fans were saying, we know it's probably not going to go very well, but we just like him. <laughs> he's, you know, he's our. <laughs> we like him, him being our manager, yeah, yeah. Yes. and I think there's, you know, I'm sure some people would still mock that. I think there's a lot to be said for that. You know, it's a, um, like Liverpool's dreadful form in the last like six months. You'd be thinking, oh my god, like the manager should probably, you know, be in a bit of trouble here, but people just like him, and you know. If they lose a load of games, then that's just a byproduct of him being there. I think it, uh, you know, it's a rare talent to have, and I think Keegan did have that. Yeah, and and lest we forget, he nearly won a league with no shape, and <clears throat> you know, it's like it's like people then pull it. We'll talk about the game in a minute, but people. People are very quick, aren't they, to say, oh, what a fucking joke it was or how stupid it was. It's like, yeah, but there were thousands of other managers working on shape and all the stuff you said they should be working on and they were getting relegated or finishing mid-table or your point, Scott, winning mm-hmm. a League Cup and nobody actually cared. You know, so there is something about... Nobody would ever do this again, would they? And the England experience, as we said, was, was terrible. Well, but again, like you... You know, when he took over in Newcastle, they were nearly getting themselves relegated to the third division. Mm. So, and people kind of forget that bit as well that he like dragged them up from. I mean, they were in a pretty sorry state. I forget was it our dealers he took over from? I can't remember now. But they weren't. I think it was. Like, Newca- yeah. Newcastle were in a wee bit of bother, and he sort of came in, like had a couple of tantrums, you know, to make sure he would get the money that he was promised to spend on players and um i mean yeah he didn't didn't do a bad <laughs> like he left them w- w- were they top when he left them or they were second or something like that weren't they go on mike 
Uh, well, I was going to say exactly that. I mean, it's not people kind of focus a bit like you know we talk about the the Elvis Vegas years earlier. People you know focus <laughs> on where it ended, but you know, but what tw- twice he done it at Newcastle. You know, he, he had a very sort of messianic effect as a player when he was there, mm. and then you know the managerial part, which was a complete surprise. Like, and you know, and his first job in management, and it was almost a complete ascendant line. Right up until when he left, and uh, yeah, when he walked away, I think um, they were either second or at the very top of the league. Anyway, he brought Alan Shearer back, um, and the, the the bottom line of it all is, I think, really, is that we're still talking about the team now, and they didn't they didn't win anything. And it's, uh, you know, if you if you're going to have a legacy that isn't winning trophies, I mean, that's that's hardly a bad substitute. I think <laughs> the. the um... The last thing on the Beresford thing and about that Messiah point, Scott, and I think that for the for the fans, but I think he had that thing with players because apparently when Beresford phoned him, the first thing that Keegan said was, oh, thank you so much for ringing me. So he had this kind of like incredibly polite loveliness that endeared you, as we've all seen, that endeared the players to him straight away. And then when he said, come and have the medical, and we did it. And he said, listen, if you come and play for me, we'll get promoted. And he said, and by the end of next year, you'll be in the England squad. I'm telling you. And and Beresford said, I thought he's fucking mad, but yet I still signed <laughs> and thought it might happen. And then he did get in the England squad and he said, and that's the other thing, Keegan then came up to him and said, you didn't believe me, did you? Like the week after he'd been kind of nominated. And I know again, that I think Shankly did something similar to him, didn't he, Scott? Didn't he, Shankly say to Keegan, you'll play for him? And he said, I just believed it straight away. Yeah, it's, you know, there's only certain people that can have the sort of hoot spa to... <laughs> <laughs> to, to, to get away with nonsense like that, but he's just he's just one of them. I mean, you do I, wonder I, how many I, players I, he said it to. He didn't get in the England squad, but they, you know. well, well, I mean, that's 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 probably true. But I just I, I do wonder. Like, I mean, Keegan just to me is one of those people. I don't understand why. I don't understand anyone who doesn't love Keegan because he <laughs> he was a he was an amazing player, you know. Um, and yeah, his managerial. Just the, yeah, just his first Newcastle stint is just astonishing. They weren't even around that long. This team were they like, like no. three years or whatever, yeah. maybe four years. He was there. They also had the two most beautiful kits that there's ever been in the history of football, in my opinion. But uh, the home and away kit this year were absolutely mm. gorgeous. But uh, that's another point entirely. Go on, Mike. You're going to come in then. Oh, I was just going to say, so the first sort of five years of the Premier League, when I mean, Keegan was there, for, it was, was it 92, 93 was when they came up, I think. But can you imagine those years, those Premier League building years without him? I mean, it's almost unthinkable, really. Not all right, he's a bit of an idealistic dreamer, but I don't know. Comparing football him- needs to, football needs room for people like that, because you can imagine how, how dull a place... <laughs> or how duller, duller a place would it have been without him? I think that's that's the kind of way I think about it. Well, also on that point, um, like the greatest manager in the Premier League is obviously Sir Alex Ferguson, but he's always needed someone to lock horns with. There's always been someone along the way. Kind of, you know, first up it was Kenny Dalglish, later on it would be Wenger and Mourinho. But there was this sort of, chunk of time that you're talking about there that he needed Keegan and it yeah. was Keegan they were kind of they were you know they were more similar than than not but you know Ferguson 
ultimately knew what he was doing, <laughs> while you know Keegan was running a bit more on fumes. But th but that contrast was beautiful. Look, speaking of contrast or, or not, Scott, looking across to the other bench then, you talk about idealism and you've already talked about the way that this Liverpool team play. What's what's the views on, you know, a lot? Of, there's so many hours spent talking about Keegan, isn't there, for all the reasons we've just outlined. But what about, what, what's your, was Roy Evans too much of a romantic? Was he too much like Keegan or was it something else? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, he didn't quite, he didn't quite have the... The sort of charisma, um, although he was a lovely guy and everyone liked him, but I think he's one of those figures that history will be kind to. Mm. Um, he was very much, and I know this is something, but I think fans of every club would say that sometimes you just need someone to come in and you can just pretend to be all the things you want to be with this guy in charge. So when the soonest thing kind of went wrong for whatever reason... You just needed a Roy Evans-style figure and Liverpool fans could just be themselves and, like, circle the wagons and, you know, calm everything down again. And it was very similar when Hodgson got the boot and everyone sort of laughed at Dalglish coming back. But Liverpool really needed Dalglish back then. It, just for, like... 18 months or whatever and he was clearly not the right man for the long term but it allowed them to go in a thing it just calmed everything oh. down i mean without that you wouldn't have had andy carroll would you so you know <laughs> <laughs> well exactly you know um this small small mercies uh, <laughs> chaos theory in action right there but uh, it, but, but it was I, th I think it was definitely true of, of evans um because it was a weird time for Liverpool as well. They'd been sort of in the ascendancy so long and it had just very, very quickly turned to shit <laughs> for 101 reasons. Um, and what was worse, the, the new kings were Manchester United. And, yeah, so it was yeah. it was tumultuous. So you did need a sort of Evans there. And he his teams were good, but just not quite... You know, like the Keegan sides, they just didn't quite have the have the moxie. They didn't have the luck when it, they needed it as well. And, you know, 101 things that you need, it just didn't quite go there. But, yeah, history will be kind. Andy Carroll, the mention of Andy Carroll there reminds you that my, <laughs> my son's 18, and nearly 19, and, and he's of the age now, obviously, the meme age, and... He he calls four four two Brexit the Brexit formation, <laughs> and, and Andy Carroll is the the, the leading Brexit. Andy Carroll is the, is leading the line of a Brexit four four two team, which really tickled me. There's, I've no idea what Andy Carroll's politics are, but it did it just tickled me that these these things that that was all we knew for a time was four four two yeah. with a big striker is now is now Brexit in the eyes of an eighteen year old. How far they how far they come and how far football comes. Anyway, back at the game, um, coming into the game, and you've given a lovely little synopsis of the kind of context, Mike. But just to be clear, uh, coming into the game, United were thirty-two games played, sixty-seven points. Newcastle were thirty games played, sixty-four points. So still very much in with a shout with this and, and destiny in their own hands, etc. But having had just... I think they were 12 points up at Christmas, weren't they? So they'd, they'd had this kind of chipped away at 
ever since. I think you said nine from the end of February, didn't you, Mike? Liverpool on 31 points, 59... Sorry, 31 games, 59 points. Did... did so I'll bring you back in a minute, Mike, but Scott, did... Was there any actual belief that Liverpool could claw the title back from this point in 1996? Yeah, I think so. Um, because they'd gone on such a good run, mm-hmm. um, sort of through Christmas and, you know, for the first couple of months of the year. And they were playing some really good stuff. And even though, I mean, it was like you said, they lost to Forest in the previous league game, but they just reached a cup final. Um, they were playing, you know, at their best, they were as good as anyone that season. Um, but, you know, as it transpired, <clears throat> they didn't quite have, they didn't quite have the moxie to, to get it done in the end. Um, but I just think just at this point, yeah, it was still on. If, you know, if things went right, if they managed to win this game, they were still on everyone's, um, they were still in the hunt. United, were you confident as a United fan in 1996, Mike? Um, well, I mean, at this point, <clears throat> obviously it looked like, um, you know, they could do it. And because of the, it's it's when you have your blip, I think, is um, quite significant in a league campaign, isn't it? So United's was before Christmas, which is when they fell behind. Um, but just because of the way the league was then, it was more... Recoverable, I suppose, you know, because there's just more, there's more season left. Um, and Newcastle had their sort of blip in, uh, or, or just pre squeaky bum time, as uh, as Fergie would call it. Um, Liverpool did feel like they were up until Forest, at least, they had this momentum going from just before Christmas. Um, and also in, in kind of direct competition, they'd outplayed United twice, so um, they'd very nearly popped the balloons at. Cantona's return party in October when uh, that game finished two all, but um, apart from Cantona's return, is notable for um, sort of two brilliant goals by Robbie Fowler. Uh, Fowler then scored twice again when Liverpool beat United two 0 in I think in the December. I think it was just before Christmas. Um, so it did feel like they were the coming team. They they'd slightly stalled against um, Forest, but then they'd. Um, Three days before this game, they battered uh, Villa in the uh, semi-final of the uh, FA Cup. And t- two fantastic goals from Fowler again. And he was in a spate of form then, particularly individually. Is, I mean, watching him from afar, it's just you were thinking, well, this is what it must have been like to watch Jimmy Greaves play. It's uh, mm. he, he was extraordinary from uh, February, March, April, I think he was... Uh, he was absolutely sensational, and w- and would be in this game as well. Um, so it's they they had a lot to do Liverpool, but I think I think now in a league title race, if you're eight ahead with six seven games, you just assume it's over now, don't you? Mm. Just because you know teams at the top of the table don't don't lose that much, but it felt it you know then it would have felt more precarious because th- there were more places in the league that you could go and lose. I think. Um, it was more feasible then. Um, that dynamics changed quite dramatically in the Premier League, I think. Um, and, and Liverpool would um, partly prove that point, I think. Uh, so st- straight after winning this sort of very epic midweek game, um, you know, they lost they lost away to Coventry, and uh, in that that was effectively their title challenge over. But you know, United would go on to lose to 
Southampton, the great, you know, the famous white shirts, not white, sorry, grey shirts <laughs> game where they couldn't see each other. And uh, and it, it's, it still went right to the wire. This it still went to the very last um, last weekend. So, um, you know, it, it, it never felt like, um, certainly at this point, it didn't feel close to being done at all. I mean, cards on the table from my point of view, as people listening know and you guys know, I'm an old athletic fan. Um, so, you know, I've had my own problems to bear, but my, um, my, my dad is, is, is from Ashington in Northumberland and he's one of mm. 10 brothers and sisters who all support Newcastle. So I was absolutely pulling as hard as you possibly could for Newcastle to win it. And not just because it was against United or anything like that. I genuinely wanted to see, I think like a lot of people wanted to see Newcastle win it, but for me, it was actually quite personal. I had to watch my dad kind of live in every moment of this every week. Um, when I well, not certainly hear him when I spoke to him on the phone. Um, so I was, I was, so I suppose we've got a nice representation here because we, I'm not a United Newcastle fan, but I was suddenly on a Newcastle to win. You got United here and a Liverpool fan in Scott as well. So it's interesting. But I would so, just um, yeah, on, say, I just to say something quickly for for Liverpool. I mean, it wouldn't have felt like the double-edged sword that the the final game of the previous season had been a little, you know, with Blackburn, where. You know, if Liverpool beat Blackburn, which they actually did do, but it might deny them the, you know, the title. I mean, Liverpool winning here didn't inadvertently. I mean, it kind of did inadvertently chuck it in to Man United's lap. But Liverpool still felt like they were in this. Mm. Certainly after they'd won this game, it, it definitely felt like it was back on or potentially back on for them. I think. So to the game itself then let's talk about the let's let's start with the teams shall we so liverpool who are playing this sort of wing back 352 52 whatever you want to call it um that was Duriger of the time uh david james in goal jason McAteer on the right mark Wright, john scales neil ruddock rob jones uh, Jamie Redknapp, John Barnes, Steve McManaman in midfield, Stan Collymore and Robbie Fowler up front. And on the bench, you had Tony Warner, the goalkeeper, and Steve Harkness. Was Tony Warner a goalkeeper? Am I getting oh, yeah. mixed up? Yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah. Steve Harkness, Ian Rush. Newcastle playing what's now known as Brexit 4-4-2, although I challenged <laughs> that it was actually 4-4-2. Actually, when you look at how this game pans out, I think it was more like 4-2-4. But uh, you've got Pavel Cernicek, Steve Watson, Steve Howie, Philippe Albert, John Beresford at left-back, Peter Midfield, Peter Beardsley, David Batty, Robert Lee, David Ginola, and up front, Espria and Les Ferdinand. But I think frequently that was a front four of Beardsley, Ginola, Espria and Ferdinand quite a bit. Uh, subs, Darren Peacock, Keith Gillespie and Lee Clark. I suppose it's easy to sort of say, well, actually, you know, playing a front four is ridiculous, but that wasn't that unusual, it, like 4-4-2 turning into 4-2-4 in attack. Was it, Mike? That was United's way of doing things, certainly in the mid-90s, was it? Yeah, I mean, I suppose, I mean, I guess one of the things to say about Newcastle would be that... Um, in that midfield too, um, if that, if that if indeed that's what it was, <laughs> you know, Robert Rob Lee was a very attack attack minded midfielder as well, and um, David Batty actually had only signed for Newcastle in February, so he'd, he'd only very recently come into the team. So it, it does suggest with Keegan that it wasn't a complete blind spot that, you know, just constantly being on the front foot was the way to do it. it, it 
it did, it was a bit of an insurance signing, I think. And I think with Batty as well, he, he was perceived as like the lucky, you know, he'd won a title with Leeds in 92. He'd won it with Blackburn in 95. And um, so I, I think he had come in to try and stabilise things a bit. And um, I mean, we're calling it Brexit 442, actually, but this is... Um, this is four months after the the Bosman ruling's been passed. So, <laughs> you can see what you can see here in the Newcastle team is um, that they've got four overseas players um, in Cernicek, Albert, uh, Genoa, and Aspria. And um, so, Aspria had only been there for two months, I think, as well. But after that, was a quite astonishing signing at the time for an, an English club to get the world's leading strikers out of Serie A and into the Premier League. I mean, come 96, come the summer, UTV deal was signed. That started happening all the time. But um, that was an incredibly glamorous signing by Newcastle. And when, when they made it as well, we think, well, well, this could make, you know, the difference in the title race. And for a little while, it looked like it was going to. It was, you know, he started really well for Newcastle, that's brilliant. But well, hindsight, no, but apparently it was the worst signing that's ever happened. Obviously, it wasn't, but that's the kind of thing again. The way that history is written now, isn't it? That that was the that was the thing that ruined everything. But coming back to Scott's point, and when we talk about the game, really, and the other games, mm. the forgotten bit is how much he actually did. Um, well, they were planning on saying uh, Jean Pierre Papin, but Keegan decided now we'll go for a spree instead. Um, and yes, Mike says he. He started. He started really well. He's kind of been left holding the can for all this, but like you know, Newcastle's like defence had like looked pretty ragged for a, a couple of months previously. The Spurs, you know, set up a few chances in the Manchester United defeat. He scored at Man City. Um, hit the post at West Ham. Yeah, yeah, but and then scored, and there was a quick return game against West Ham. He scored against that one, so he was kind of, you know, he definitely had his faults, <laughs> but um, he was. It, it it looked as though he was going to be the the catalyst for, you know, for just getting the getting them over the line. But in the end, it was obviously a bit more, you know, a bit of the old Rodney Marsh at Man City, but. Um, hmm. Although that's been slightly overplayed. I'm not going to go down that route tonight. So, I think the other thing about, just to make the point about that 4-2-4 and how it might have been different to certainly United, was the fact that Beardsley and Ginola were not coming back. They they were not chasing back overly to help out full-backs in the way that maybe Giggs or Lee Sharp may have done. Um. So th- th- that's why it becomes more of a four-two-four for me. And I mentioned the substitutes. I haven't had either. The substitutes are Darren Peacock, Keith Gillespie, and uh, the youth product Lee Clark. He went to Sunderland, didn't he? In the end. Um, so to the game then. Um, you did a minute by minute on this, Scott, didn't you? And I think you said before we came on that because you did a, a, a hindsight minute by minute, didn't you? And I think you said before you yeah. came on, you remember it being good, but <clears throat> you don't remember it quite being like this. So. It was a million miles an hour from the start, wasn't it? I mean, it was just from the get-go. Well, because 
Because like anything, you remember the top line, you remember who won, so everyone remembers Collymore's winner. Um, but and you think, okay, even for a game with seven goals, <laughs> this was madness because they were just like end to end. I mean, as we'll see, like most of those come on the back of the other team having nearly scored a goal themselves. And it is that literal basketball rhythm. And it could have it could have ended up as anything. And it just I'm I'm not sure there's ever been a game certainly like this that that I have seen. Um it, but even then the memory banks didn't <laughs> didn't tell the whole story because I was astounded. And having to do the the, the problem is when you do these retro minute by minutes, which we did uh, during the first lockdown when there was no football on uh, at the Guardian. Um, they're slightly different to doing normal minute by minutes because you can miss stuff. You just have to when you're doing it live in a minute by minute. Mm. There's not enough time to write everything. Plus the fact you don't know what's going to be relevant or if there'll be anything that'll be worth calling back later on in the game. But these ones you have to go, all right, okay, so something happened in one. Okay, there's a goal in minute two. Something's happened in minute three, minute four. <laughs> minute, they, you just don't you do that. And it's. I'm not sure. There were, I'm not going to go back through it, but I'm kind of thinking there might not have been a missing minute. Like every minute had something that happened in it. And that's just like, that's not, that's that's not normal behavior for anyone, and it wasn't just because the because the defences were were sort of all over the shop. Although that was a factor, it was just a, it was just a heady mix of everything. There was something in the air. The um, the thing about high scoring games like this, and of course they did one again the year after, didn't they? But the, there's been lots of high scoring games, and I suppose the thing about high scoring games is they also tend to bring quite a lot of high farce about them. <laughs> and hmm. I've, I suppose it's a question, really. Is this an exception to that rule? Was it actually quality, or was it? I mean, I'm not, it's a bit of a binary choice, isn't it? It's either farce or it's quality. But you see what I'm saying? Is it did this? On, if it's a spectrum, is this more towards the quality end than the farce end? Uh, well, I'd say definitely more towards the the quality end. I mean. It, even even if you just took it from the goals, and it's some it's some really brilliant goals in this game, and it's not like they're they're bypassing the midfield and getting in with one ball. Mm. Um, you know, a lot of them are quite intricately worked. It's it's the it's just the sort of pulsating nature of it that really stands out. That so that's before I watched this again. So I watched it again recently, and I haven't seen this for twenty five years in full, and. It was that thing, you know, like when you rewatch, uh, I don't know, whatever your favourite, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark or something, you know, something you like cherished from a long time ago, and then you watch it again, and think, oh right, it's yeah, it's not as good as I remember it. <laughs> but this, I mean, it was I was I was actually taken aback by. It felt like it felt at the time, and I can remember very specifically how this felt at the time as well. I mean, you didn't need time to contextualise what you'd seen. Really, it was immediately apparent. I think that we'd seen something pretty extraordinary. I mean, I, so I watched this game in the, the, the football club where I, where I used to play, and I knew that there were BBC highlights coming on at, I think, sort of 20 to 11, something like that. And I, I left the pub, which I, I 
early, but I very rarely did in those days, <laughs> um, and went straight home so I could watch the highlights, so I could see it again, because I, I just knew I'd seen something that was memorable, and I knew I had to tape it and, you know, keep some kind of uh, a record of it. It was, um, yeah, it was amazing. Um, the, and it was it was palpable as well. You could f- almost feel the intensity of it through the screen. And it, it, a lot of things assist to that, obviously. I mean, obviously the, the nature of the two teams and the way they play, but, you know, it's Anfield, it's midweek, it's a night game. There's an awful lot on this game. You know, Newcastle have to win to you know, go back to the top of the table. Liverpool need to win to stay in it. So there was a desperation to it, I think, but mm. it was very controlled chaos, if you like. Um, I can't I can't really pin down the words to describe it, but it was just, um, yeah, it was just, it was just extraordinary to watch because you, you just think well, it, can't, it can't continue like this. You think at half time, well, someone's going to affect some kind of change that will stop this. <laughs> uh, what what Ryan Evans would later refer to as kamikaze football. I mean, he called it that, but he did absolutely nothing to try, to try <laughs> yes. to change the pattern of the match at all. It was uh, yeah. So so to rewatch it and to 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 get that same feeling again was uh, it's wonderful. I mean, it's, it's you know a lot of things from twenty twenty five years ago don't stand up to rewatching at all. This this certainly does. Keegan's plum blazer doesn't stand up to rewatching when he's signing autographs at the beginning of the game. That much I do know. <laughs> um, so let's get into the into the kind of action then, I suppose. So if you, if you think about... So Fowler opens the score. We've already mentioned what a year... Well, a couple of years he's had, hasn't he, really? He's had the, the season before he was ridiculous, wasn't he? And he, he's continued it into mm. this year as, as well. Um I suppose I found myself watching this again. The, the only question I wrote down was, where on earth is Steve Howie going for this goal? Because he just run, <laughs> yeah. he runs directly at his own goal line, Steve Howie, for reasons I can't quite fathom. Because uh, was, he, was he right to be discombobulated, Mike, by this goal, or was it just a symptom of Newcastle's situation at the back that Scott's already mentioned? Um, Possibly, yeah. I mean, I... One thing I would say about this, the, the cross for this goal from Collymore mm. is absolutely brilliant. Off, off his nominally wrong wrong foot as well. I mean, He gives it the Collymore full Rick was... Holden as well. He, his entire body leaves the ground as he hits it. Yeah. He absolutely booms it one. And like, <laughs> he almost like yeah. squat jumps as he's hitting it. It's incredible. Yeah. But I mean, Collymore, he had a wonderful left foot. I mean, he, so his Liverpool career, I think, had kicked off with a couple of brilliant long-range goals with his left foot. One against Sheffield Wednesday, and I think one against Blackburn. But when strikers cross the ball, it's they often use the same trajectory and their power as they do for a shot, basically. So it's um, it's almost a perfect cross to the back post, and it's Fowler arrives from off screen on the right. But it's got like a hint of Carlos Alberto about it. You think, where's the ball going? And then when Fowler comes into shot, there's just a sort of inevitability about. It. It going in. I think this is after ninety seconds as well. And just to go back to like you know the nature of this game. By this point, Newcastle have already had a corner and had a header that was deflected wide. I think. And yet, and yet after ninety seconds, they go they go one nil down at the other end, which it tells you a lot of what you need to know about you know what kind of a game this was. I think. And then and then Les Ferdinand equalises. We're not spoken about Les Ferdinand actually, have we so far? Um, 
who was an incredibly important signing for Newcastle at, at this point as well. And there's, I don't think there's enough made of, of his pass for Ginola's equaliser either. But he had some years, oh, didn't he? Yeah. yeah. Scott, he was, Mike, whoever. <laughs> Scott, go on. Well, no, I mean, I, I, I wasn't going to say too much other than he was just like, um, he was one of those sort of last, um, I mean, obviously Shearer was about to, was about to turn up, but the sort of idea of the, you know, number nine, the sort of Milburn, McDonald, all that sort of thing. Um, you know, he and Andy Cole had just gone. And that was that's not really a thing anymore, is it, <laughs> for Newcastle? Like, they're not searching for this player anymore. They don't seem to be, um, rightly or wrongly. played a lot for a Brazilian lad who doesn't seem to have uh, helped him, <laughs> but yeah. 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 But, um, but Ferdinand came in and just immediately just filled that filled that gap um, that Cole had left. And he, like, he, on his day, like, unplayable. Like, I mean, he did this goal, he... The equaliser, I mean, you could, if you wanted to, criticise David James. And believe you me, in my life, there's been quite a lot of times where I've been... <laughs> I was wondering how long it would take James. for this to yeah. surface, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> but and, like, he's sort of beaten kind of towards his near post from close right. You know, you're thinking he should have... Should he have done better? But no, I mean, like... It, Ferdinand's turn and shot, there was such venom in it. It was, you know, unstoppable. And then just when you're thinking, okay, well, he's a big man up front with a, you know, with a powerful shot. You mentioned that pass for the for the Ginola goal four minutes later to put him, uh, to put him clear down the left. Just that spin and outside of the foot. Yeah. Caressed out to the wing. Oh, my God. I mean, he was a proper player. Never, never quite sure why they sold him to Tottenham, but you know. And I think a lot. Of, yeah, it's, it's a good point about that pass because a lot is made of Ferdinand's, and maybe it is the older uh, not giving uh, players from a certain background their due in terms of what a footballer they are, because a, too, a lot is made of his strength and pace yeah, yeah, yeah. and everything yeah. else, and not enough is reflected on his career on. His ability, like you said, a proper player, Scott, and the ability to do that. Sorry, Mike, I cut you off as I was talking then. Oh, it's fine. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, you couldn't play up front in that team if you couldn't play football <laughs> yes, on the ground. Basically, there's no way. I mean, he's. I think that was his 27th goal of the season. Um, and actually, Ferdinand would be player of the year this season as well. Um, I think it was announced a week or two before this... Um, game so he's back in the days when they used to do the voting very early they used to do it in like january and they would announce the award in april but i know he's um you know canton and the end of the season will be the resonant memory for a lot of people for that season but ferdinand was brilliant this season um he really wasn't he's 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 maybe lost in the memory a bit because he's in that sort of great era of when england had lots and lots of options up front and you know, Venables went with with Shearer and um, Sheringham, and then Owen emerged. And you know, England didn't qualify for the '94 World Cup, so I don't, I don't think he ever played a minute at an international tournament, Ferdinand. But um, simply, I mean, Newcastle wouldn't have been in the position they were in going into this game without without him 
um, his signing in the summer, effectively replacing Andy Cole after he'd been sold a few months earlier, was transformative for this team. And um, just on this goal, actually, it starts with um, a wonderful bit of skill from Espria where... Um, mm. He demasculates Neil Ruddock, basically. Yeah, a word for Neil Ruddock on this one. I've yeah. never seen anybody look so as, as comically out-talented as he was in that moment. <laughs> oh, he goes past it and cuts oh. it back nice. And it's a really difficult finish, actually. It's kind of like Gert Muller-esque, you know, take it one touch, spin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then hit it. Um, it goes through James a bit, but he hits it so early that um, I just don't think James has got time to react. It's... Um, Yes, yeah, a fantastic goal and a great response as well. Because you know, when you go down at one nil down at Anfield that early in that atmosphere, very easy to fold, I think. But um, you know, Newcastle came straight back. I think the other thing that that illustrates actually the you know the spree of Roddick, which was a bit of a <laughs> bit of a mismatch to say the least. But like, I'll probably get a few penalties for this, but Roddick wasn't wasn't a terrible defender. He was not the best, maybe, but he wasn't an awful player. Um, But this is one of the illustrations in this game where it's not the defenders doing something wrong. It's just the people they're up against just having these amazing games. And it's just, well, you're not going to be able to do anything about that. Mm. And Espria just, you know, absolutely, admittedly, in comical style with Ruddock, but there's a like he he does the same to Steve Harkness a couple of times in the second yeah. half, just like just all, you know going past him with almost like arrogance, like sheer you know disdain, um, and McManaman does it a couple of times as well. I think maybe to Harry, but I'm not sure. Um, but these aren't the, these aren't defenders having nightmare moments. I mean, they're suffering nightmare moments. But it's mm. it, it's just you know these things are happening to them. They're powerless to stop it. And I think that's one of the things about this game that the like none of the goals. If you if if you want to be super critical, you could I guess. But you can't put down any of these goals to mistakes. There's all like a, a there's something there's a nugget of brilliance in each and every one. And I think that's why it's kind of not one of those sort of, you know, you mentioned earlier, is it like, you know, is this a 90 minute defensive fiasco? But it it's, it kind of is and it isn't at the same time. That's one of those sentences yeah, that doesn't it, mean anything. No, but, but I hope, it, but I hope you mean. know what I'm trying to get at. You can look at something and go, what kind of organisation is that? You know, like Roy, Roy yeah. Hodgson was famous for blowing his whistle and making everyone stand where they were stood. And go like, why are you there? And what's this for? And if you were going to do that at certain points in this game, you would go, "What? Why is he there? Why is Steve <laughs> Howie walking towards the goal?" Just to pick a Newcastle example, why are the four of you there and somebody's walked in between all four of you? But actually, it's because when things happen at such incredible pace and people are just coming at you, and I think imagine. Imagine Newcastle attacking at this point and, and, and the angles and the running that was happening in front of you. I know that you're meant to be an international defender. It's very hard not to have a little bit of sympathy and say, well, actually, yeah, I can see why you were struggling there, to be honest, because of the angles and the pace that were happening. must just be impossible to deal with. But take a snapshot. It looks like nobody knows what they're doing. So I, I think that's what <laughs> that's what I take from what you said, Scott, anyway. <laughs> 
Well, I mean, the, th the thing is, you look back at these team sheets, like, if you're in the defence, if you're a defender that night, you're either going to have John Byrne, Steve McManaman, Stan Collymore and Robbie Fowler coming at you at all angles, or Peter Beardsley, <laughs> David Ginola, Festina Espria and Les Ferdinand. Now, you know, when they're all, like, just being sent onto the pitch to go and do their worst, attacking, I... You know, in Newcastle aren't um, practicing structure, and I doubt very much that Roy Evans spent too much time on that himself on the training ground. It's of course this is going to happen, <laughs> and you know, thanks, thank you. <laughs> yes, yeah. and here we are, twenty-five Fucking years defensive later. Defensive coaches, yeah. yeah. It's one thing uh, Roy Evans said after the game. Actually, is oh, we we kept leaving people one on one, two on two, and. That's the thing. If it's just you and the guy, I mean, can you match Steve McManaman in that era running at you? It must just have been, yeah. You wouldn't sleep the night before, I don't think. But it's it's at that point it's either you or him. And if he goes past you, um, you know they're going to have a chance. And there's no midfield coming back to kind of bail you out. There's no low blocks or all these uh, sort of invokes. <laughs> got terms they've got now. Yeah. Well, I mean, as you mentioned McManaman, like just watching McManaman, I find quite tiring because you're sort of thinking, "Oh my God, he's he's running it like through treacle at one mile an hour," and then suddenly you, like the jets go on, but he still looks as though he's running through treacle. He's got this really deceptively languid, you know, I wouldn't compare him necessarily but you know it's not that far off when we were talking about Socrates earlier on yeah. that that goal Socrates scores against Italy in 1982 when he's just this rangy pair of legs just sort of <laughs> sashaying into the into the but you think what the hell this is not natural it doesn't look as though he's running at all but he gets past everyone so yeah I mean the defenders must have thought what the you know we, what, what can we do that was the time when McManaman was like people. The media were quite obsessed with writing about McManaman, weren't they? And and, and everybody mm. was, but and everybody was obsessed. I think I think even um, I think Rob said on a previous episode that Ferguson was obsessed with McManaman and stopping McManaman at, at this time as well. Yeah. yeah. And was it? He always, I read McManaman in an interview once where he basically said when they played against Leicester, I think Martin O'Neill put Pontus Carmark on him, man on man. To man marking for the entire game, and McManaman just saying it was the strangest thing I've ever experienced. Just this, this same bloke following you round for ninety <laughs> minutes. He said, yeah. and in a way, it wasn't so much that he defended me out of the game. You kind of, you, it's the psychological effect of it in some ways. It's just like being stalked by the same person yeah. for ninety minutes. <laughs> it's a uh, yeah, but. It was a real thing for about two or three years with McManaman, wasn't it? That he, you know, or give him a free roll, and he should be doing this, and he should be in the hole, and he's better coming in from the left, and you have to make, you have to stop him. And and the weird thing is, watching it back now, this is going to sound awful. He didn't seem like he warranted that much. Very good player. I'm not trying to say he isn't, but he, he, looking at it now, he didn't seem to warrant that much attention in hindsight. But maybe I'm just being, maybe I'm being a bit too cynical and miserable. Well, he, he, his problem was he kind of had that look that he couldn't be bothered what happened. <laughs> Failed the eye one, test, as they say. One, yeah. You know, one way or another. And and I'm sure that probably rubbed some people up the wrong way. But yeah, I mean, he was just a very difficult player to read. And you said that, you know, 
most people thought he was best coming in on the, off, off the left. Well, the greatest goal he ever scored in the last minute at Celtic Park. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Th- th- that was that was the length of the pitch up the right. So, you know, again, good, good luck trying to work out what he's going to do. I mean, <laughs> yeah, you know, ultimately he was one of those players that kind of flattered to deceive a bit and didn't achieve maybe what he should have done. But he was, you know, I loved watching him. I thought he was, you know, fantastic in his in his pomp. Oh yeah, I don't disagree with that at all. So. We're then on to... Have we talked about Ginola's goal? I can't remember. We've had a, we've had a digression. So it's one all after Ferdinand scored <laughs> and then Ginola comes in and we're up to... Well, you know, comically, we're up to minute 14 and David Ginola makes it 2-1. We've talked about Ferdinand's pass. Hmm. Ginola's first season in England, Mike? Yeah, I mean, this is... Um, this is a great goal. Yeah, Ferdinand's ball with the outside of his foot as well. Um and Ginola, he basically runs it through. He's got the gas to get away from McAteer, um, who struggled with him quite badly, I think, particularly in the first half of this game. Um, one thing I'd forgotten, actually, is from being a player, is like the stature of Ginola, like how, how big his frame is, you know, how, how, how powerful he was. He Was he six foot three or something like that? He's quite mm. a tall guy, but, you know, big, strong, really quick as well. And... Um, yeah, once he got the wrong side of McAteer, he he was never going to catch him. And he and he finished it really nicely as well. Um, it's a brilliant goal, but yeah, he's a quite the media darling, I think, of the first half of this season. Um, again, signed. I don't I don't think people would have known a fantastic amount about um, Genoa before because he was playing in League One um, at the time in uh, '95. Uh, but yeah. Superb for Newcastle on the uh, on the on the right or the left. You know he could play on either wing, and you know could deal with you know fullbacks trying to launch him over the uh, <laughs> sideline and into the crowd, which was still wasn't even a booking then. And um, you know the the Stuart Pierces and the uh, Julian Dixes of this world and things. And um, yeah, put them two one in front, and it's. I mean, we made the point about when they equalised, but. To spin this round and get two one in front after after going behind in ninety seconds like that, see, yeah, you know, people often say now that this Newcastle team because they didn't win the title, they they were somehow, you know, deficient in character, or you know, they didn't have the the kind of gumption to try and win a title. I mean, but you you wouldn't turn around a game being played in this kind of atmosphere to lead two one, you know, if you didn't have a have a bit about you, I don't think. And um it's yeah, it's uh it's a superb goal. Um and uh yeah, two two one to Newcastle and it's it's yeah, what was it, fourteen minutes you said it was? Um I believe so. Yeah, and there'd be yeah. like six six shots on goal. Yeah. <laughs> Three of them have ended up in the net. <laughs> I think and, what you say about um, you know, Newcastle having that um you know, having that will to turn this around and the ability and mental strength to do it, and that it's forgotten. I think it's forgotten that at this time, people really would have thought, yeah, Newcastle have definitely got Liverpool's number. They'd been, they'd knocked them out of the League Cup. They'd won at St James's Park. Yeah. Um, you know, they were the more credible title challengers this season. They were the better side. Um, so this. 
you know, this would have been, okay, Liverpool had started well with the early goal, but now kind of how we thought this was probably going to pan out was was panning out. Um, it, yeah, people did think that Newcastle were a dangerous side. It's weird how that gets, as you say, it gets, it gets sort of um, forgotten about these days. But there we have it, 2-1. Liverpool have not done much since they scored early. Um, and the other thing about, lest, lest we forget, and we'll come on to this, Newcastle were leading twice in this game away mm. from home, you know, and that's where people start to ask, why were you still playing 4-2-4? You'd already had the shit frightened out of you. You know, you've managed to claw it back because of everything that you've just said. Could you not have done something different? But I think we'll talk about that as, as the game develops and what Keegan said at the end, I suppose. Read that then as a, an absolutely fizzing boomer that goes just wide, um, which I don't think Cerny Chet was anywhere near Scott, was he? No, no. That was <laughs> like that, from no, about he wasn't, thir- no. It was about 30 yards or so, wasn't it? Yeah, 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 just wide. Um, yeah, Redknapp, Red, yeah, Redknapp. Redknapp, I always found a frustrating, slightly overrated player, but like when he was on song, um, you know he could really ping it around, and um, he had a he had a good game here. Anything else for the rest of the first half, Mike? You want to pick up on? Uh, just I would say that I I thought Newcastle were the the sort of better team for the rest of the second half. Um, one one thing that's noticeable about this actually is um, you know people think football changed a tremendous amount in the last twenty five years. No, obviously it has in a lot of ways, but one is how how high Newcastle press. Liverpool with all those attacking players and also Liverpool's willingness to play out from the back with that uh, back three is um, is really quite strikingly noticeable actually it doesn't it, when you watch it to me it doesn't always feel like a game from 25 years ago um, there, there are lots of elements of it that you can see in the modern game um, when you watch it, I think, and um, there's a couple of interesting bits. There's a few times the cameras pan to the uh, sidelines and stuff as well. So both teams are sponsored by Adidas, and the both sets of coaching staff have got those massive, oversized um, Adidas, uh, <laughs> you know, winter coats on that are. Uh, and because it's the mid '90s, the shirts both teams are wearing as well. Every, every player seems to have a shirt that's a size too big for him, which was a very '90s thing, wasn't mm. it? To, you know, if you're a medium to buy a large, and it's just these big, billowing, uh, <laughs> yeah, heavy Premier League shirts where, where everyone now looks like a cyclist, don't they? They all wear the really, uh, but they were the uh, tight shirt. I think they were both nice kits. That they were yeah, great about. kits. Um, yeah. Didn't like the collar on the Liverpool one. Too, collar was an inch too thick for me, but uh, yeah, yeah. No, I think I, I would agree with you there. But the thing is, we were coming off the back of those um, ones with the Adidas white stripes, the three stripes on either side oh, of the, yeah. the, the, the midriff. The, the, yeah, yeah, the sort of Julian Dix, <laughs> the, sort of the same one Bulgaria wore, in, but just in different colours. It was a, yeah. Adidas's "Will This Do" design department. Yeah, and and they were horrible kits, and then we got this one that was, you know, the collar aside was pretty, pretty nice. And as you said, the Newcastle one just had that sort of Huey Gallagher, nineteen twenties vibe about it, and it just looked beautiful. And you think, oh, they're gonna, it's so good that they've got this kit because it was the twenties they last won the league, <laughs> and it would be just this lovely narrative purity if they, 
looked like they did back then. It's the way they, they integrated the three stripes into the stripes of the Newcastle top, which seems like the most obvious thing in the world to do. And yeah, it was on the sleeve, but it was just wonderful. And the big, the the the, the big small change they made is that they'd gone from having the blue star for Newcastle Brown on the front to having the actual badge that's on the bottle on the front. <laughs> Yeah. I don't know why, but it's just brilliant. It's just that, that kit was so lovely. <laughs> so at half time, then Newcastle going two one up, as you said, Mike, better team. Um, Mark Wright's injured, so Steve Harkness comes on. Um, yeah, and as you, your point, Mike, everyone's changed into gigantic coats because Keegan didn't have one in yeah. the first half, and of course it's the gigantic coats which lives long in the memory in the final moments of this game, mm. isn't it? Among mm. many other among many other things. How does the second half start, Scott? How do, what, what are we looking like? I mean, it's just, it, it pretty much starts where, <laughs> where it le- left off. I mean, I think Newcastle, again, you know, was sort of looking the more likely. Um, Steve Harkness is in a bit of trouble quite soon. Just you know, Ferdinand giving him a bit of a bit of, a bit of bother, um, but it kind of yeah, it's just like it, it is one of those things that you're thinking. Well, Newcastle just you can see why the they haven't changed things because if if they're going to go three one up, um, it's you know normally you would think it's pretty unlikely you're going to come back from that, and they look more than capable of getting that third goal. And it was Liverpool who were like now really desperate. They're behind, they're at home. They really need to win this game. Um, yeah, I'm not sure Newcastle played their cards that, that badly. Mm. It, didn't, it didn't go very well for them, but, um, you know, if they didn't seem to be doing anything, you know, that you could pick apart too much. Unless, of course, uh, you know different. <laughs> No, certainly not. <laughs> well, I don't know. It's just that I probably missed something. No doubt. So, um, Liverpool then equalised through Robbie Fowler, which is, a, a again, a consummate finish of, of great aplomb to, uh, to coin, you know, a lot of cliches, Mike. Yeah, oh, I love this goal. Um, <laughs> it starts with... Um, I think it must, it must be McAteer who plays the ball down the line to McManaman. Yeah. Who controls it brilliantly, cuts in from the right, and then lays, sort of lays it across to the edge of the area. And this foul, is just, it, it just tells you everything about the kind of zone he was in at the time. He just hits it first time as it comes across him and just smashes it past Cernicek. And um, he did that celebration he always used to do then where he'd sort of dive, sliding head of the ball into the, the back <laughs> of the net after it had... Um, gone in and his um you know his nose plaster's falling off and all this uh all this stuff it's um yeah it's a brilliant guy so a few minutes before this rob lee gets through and he's he's kind of one-on-one with james at one moment, but james makes a really good save he makes a couple of good saves in this half david james which uh keep liverpool in it at points where they might go um two goals behind so he's um yeah, it's strange to flag up a goalkeeper in a 4-3, but he, do, he does make a couple of really important mm. um, saves in this match. But, um, yeah, a stunning hit from Fowler. And it's, as Scott said, I mean, this is sort of 10 minutes into the second half and nothing's changed, really. It's um, 
you know, this, uh, it's still being same ch- uh, played at the same pace, the same ferocity. There's, there was a point actually just before half time where um, Barnes kind of bundles over a spreeer in the box, um, and it, it might it might be a penalty. And it's but people moved on very quickly from those things then. Whereas now you can imagine, you know, Sky Sports Premier League would tweet out, "Is this a penalty?" and you know, a little thirty-second clip of the incident, and um, and just in general about the game. I mean, it's thank God VAR didn't get hold of this. I mean, because this is what football <laughs> sta- this is what football stands to lose with VAR. I'm not saying every game is going to end up like this, obviously, but we could be costing ourselves games like this. I think. With these all these constant interjections and you know three minute breaks and all this kind of stuff, and I know I know with this argument's been done to death, but <laughs> not on this podcast. You watch, Go for it, Mike. Not that, no, but yeah, but you, you watch this back now and you just think, God, if if that kind of technology got involved in this game, would it have disrupted? Would it have been as memorable? You know, no, it might even it might even have changed the result. You know, who knows? But um, it would have it would have buggered the flow of it because there would have been a yeah. fair chance that David Batty would have been sent off in the first half. Oh um, yeah, you, you mentioned there's like two. I think there's two instances where Espria could go over for a penalty, mm. and like they, you know, the modern day commentator would say, yeah, he really should go over for that. That whole yeah. sort of Phil Foden against Southampton, and, it, and he was a cheating foreign, so he should have been going over for the penalty, shouldn't he? <laughs> yeah. According to received but he wisdom, to, you know, he wanted to stay up on his feet. He wanted to try and do the right thing, sc- score the beautiful goal, play the killer pass, and you know that was that all added to this, you know. And if yeah, these things could have easily been pulled back, would have had players booked so, you know there were a few bad challenges not not loads of bad challenges but there was one or two questionable challenges in this game i'm sure you know a couple of times people like threw hands a bit i'm sure var would stick its neb in there and say yeah, te- technically it's no transgression of the law <laughs> but yeah. you know ah, oh, fucking var then no yeah. let us not Let's not talk about VAR. No, one of the beauties of doing this, this podcast, I suppose, this is that we game. lived in a VAR-less universe. So. <laughs> Sorry, I've sucked <sighs> us back into the vortex. So <laughs> <laughs> awfulness of modern football. Liverpool are two all. It's not very long. What what minute was that scored, Scott? Remind me, I can't remember. Fifty-five well, minutes. Well, yeah, well, that was the fifty-fifth. And the thing is, when you then watch it, even knowing that on 57 minutes, a spree is going to put Newcastle up. Even with that knowledge in hindsight, I was watching the next minute and a half thinking, Jesus, Liverpool are going to score another here. <laughs> they've, got, they've got the win behind them. They're, and they're, you know, piling forward. McManaman is through. Um, it doesn't quite happen. And then you're thinking, yeah, it's like they're going to get another. And then, ah, no, no, they're not, because this has happened. Um, yeah, then this amazing Esprit goal. Yeah, so, and, and that, this goal, I mean, I think it was on a Patreon special about Mexico 86 that I diverted into a long chat about Beardsley again, mm. um, <laughs> even aside his modern uh, actions that's landed him in hot water, um, where if, if what, he's, what he's reported to have said was true, it's absolutely disgusting. Um and and it's 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 horrible for me having loved him for so long when I was young. Um, a lot of what he does here says a lot about the kind of player I remember him being. 
the kind of energetic press. Didn't want to come back much, but he pressed a lot. And then the drifting inside, the very clever ball that didn't really look like it was anything, and yet it was everything. And then it's a Rob Lee who then puts in a Spreer who has a beautiful finish. Um, yeah, fantastic goal. Liverpool a little bit all over the shop though, Scott, or was it more, again, good play? Well, yes. I mean, they were completely all over the shop. I think that is one for like Hodge and Swizzle. Um, but he, <laughs> yes. But, he, but even then, it's just like for Beardsley, like you say, what he does is so disruptive. Um, and then what Lee does is so clever. And then, I mean, I've never seen a finish like Esprit's finish. And I know James comes sort of hairing out of his box. I don't know what he's thinking. He, well, he has to try and do something. <laughs> so he kind of makes Esprit's mind up for him. But it's still what he does is just this sort of like elastic. Um, it's sort of... I don't know, this gymnastic, balletic, sort of just weird, you know, it's that manic bit of, or it's that bit of control within the mania that we were talking about earlier. It could only seem to happen in a match like this. And suddenly, you know, it's literally Liverpool land one blow, Newcastle just comes straight back with like a punch to the jaw. And again, I just remember watching it and thinking, well, that's it. Like Newcastle are destined to win this. They're the better side. Like Liverpool have thrown everything they have at Newcastle. And Newcastle just keep coming back. They're in the lead again with this astonishing... And the, and the fact that everyone... Like the, the, what's doubly great about the goal is everyone's celebrating it before the ball's <laughs> gone over the line. It's just, you know, well, well, that's in, isn't it? And then everyone just goes off in their all different directions and it's all bedlam, bedlam. That's I think about, if, um, Just fantastic. If Espria was a cricketer, at a boat, he'd be described as having an unusual and busy action, wouldn't he? <laughs> and, and that's everything I think about when I see him strike a ball. It's like it's an unusual and busy action that he has that is, which I think goes a lot towards his legend, really, that, I, you know, that, that it didn't look like it should work. Sort of thing, and yeah, and yeah, obviously it 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 hugely did. Can we can we talk about David James trying to head the ball away because <laughs> <laughs> he tries to head the ball away some because he's so. Why is it? Can you give a goalkeeper twisted blood? But he seems to have given him that, doesn't mm-hmm. he? Yeah, it's um, I mean, it's a, it's a brilliant goal. This I I, just, I love it. It's um. Yeah, Beardsley's toe-poke ball. It takes out three players. It takes out the, enti- the entire yeah. Liverpool midfield. It's the classic pitter-patter-pitter-patter-poke, and then suddenly it's in. You know, it's either in the yeah. goal or somebody's in, you know. And then, yeah, when a spreer goes through, and it's just like, well, why is the linesman not flagging? And then John, you see the head of John Scales. Oh, that's why he's like 10 <laughs> yards behind <laughs> the rest of the defence. And it's, um, yeah, Scott's right. James makes up um, a spreer's mind for him, but... Um, there's a lovely sort of understated arrogance about this finish because he curls it with the outside of his right foot just past James's hand. And he's almost daring David James, like, go on, throw a hand at it because if you do, you're off. And actually, James, you can see on the replay, he, he starts to put his hand towards it and then he pulls it back. You know, he realises he's outside the area. But 
Yeah, that yeah. would have been quite a moment, you know, a, a James Red card there and a free kick to <laughs> Newcastle at two all. Um, you know how that might have changed, uh, you know, the history of that whole season. But um, it goes in, yeah. The trickle over the line is, um, and we, yeah, with all the Newcastle fans celebrating just off to the left, is brilliant. And that's what you that's what you get when you sign a Spreer. I mean, it's you just didn't see that kind of finish in England, really. I remember thinking that at the time, just thinking, yeah, he's probably the only, even including Fowler, you think, oh, he's probably the only player on the pitch that would do that, that finish in that moment. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's a brilliant bit of skill. It really is. And um, yeah, two minutes after um, Fowler's goal, and yeah, as Scott mentioned, yeah, it looked like Liverpool were going to score again. So Newcastle, they didn't even have time to sulk about the fact that their lead had gone because you know, they were under pressure again. Um, immediately, yeah, that that quick one-two punch at the start of the second half, you know, Liverpool getting it back and then Newcastle going ahead again. It's um, yeah, just a, it's a wonderful like little mini chapter in a an amazing match. And also the fact that it happened like that, like you say, it kind of that's just like, in you know, in the same way that James made a spree his mind up for him, that's everyone's mind made up now. It's just like, well, we can't lose this. Like both teams, I think we put so much into this. Yeah. It's such a good game. You have to go for it. You can't shut up shop after this. No. You just can't. It'd be like it'd be, uh, I'd, it'd be some sort of like cultural terrorism to just say I'm not going to attack anymore and defend a three-two lead. Kevin Keegan's a hero. He's a <laughs> the man is a hero. What um. That point, do you remember? We talked about a Spreer, the signing of a Spreer before, and this goal here. Um, and everybody sort of, I, mean, I remember at the time everyone saying it's bloody ridiculous that he signed a Spreer, you know, we, <laughs> something we don't need, that's absolutely ridiculous. He should sign somebody like David Batty. And it, a fortnight later, he signed David Batty. <laughs> and then nobody had anything to complain about because literally, I think it was literally, he signed early February, and I think Batty came late February. Um, yeah, there was no no uh, window then, was there? No, yeah. So it was just, yeah, and and that's the thing. It was like, well, what a ridiculous person Kevin Keegan is for signing a spree. But they should have said something like Batty, which he did, and was probably already <laughs> planning to do while you were all sounding off. So actually, you did bring in a holding midfielder that you think is so necessary, and brought in one of the best strikers in Europe, stroke the world as well. Um, uh, yeah, it's a funny one, isn't it? Speaking of David Batty, go on, Scott. Well, I was just going to say on the subject of Batty, like a <laughs> yes. couple of minutes later, he should be like he should be like. Well, I think he would be sent off these days, especially with the, you know, video equipment that we shall not name or discuss. <laughs> mm. But he like, I mean, it, if he'd made contact with that haymaker, like McAteer's head would have been <laughs> heading off towards Goodison Park, and like. He's quite lucky. Like McAteer didn't make it, make much of a deal of it. I mean, he probably should have family, been booked. Where it should have been a second yellow, maybe not a straight red. But, but you know that was lucky that that didn't happen as well because that would have just you know two minutes after the Espria goal, it's lucky that the ref just you know told everyone, look, you're all adults. Let's keep a lid on it. Yeah, so that's, that's twice think... in this game so far. David Batty could have been sent off. <laughs> you know, actually, sorry. that's another thing that I've ne- I've only just thought about. I've never thought about this game before. You don't talk about the referee in this match at all. Hmm. It, 
I don't know, there may be some pernickety decision that I'm forgetting. I mean, the, but he's not really a factor, is it? No. Uh, or, you know, the, or a decision that should or shouldn't have been made. Like, none of that applies. And I think that's, again, it's just this perfect storm, everything everything landed sort of jelly side up. So we're up to the hour. David Batty and McAteer have had a bit of a swing at each other. Um, everybody's, and it kind of drifts towards this, it's great and ridiculous denouement now as, as we plough on because minute 68, it's Collymore's goal. Uh, Scott? Yes. Um, you know, this is the one that I always <laughs> kind of forget about this goal. Um, you know, it's a, it's a really good cross by by McAteer. Collymore arrives just at the right time. In it goes. And it's sort of it's kind of I'm probably underselling it. Mike may do a better <laughs> job. But it's it, it almost feels like in the whole scheme of things, this is the one that's like just the it's almost a bit of a placeholder. It just sets everything up now. After you know, sixty eight minutes, we're into the final stretch. It's three all like it's been bedlam all the way. Um, something else is going to happen, but we just didn't know what it was. That I, I, I'm definitely being unfair on this goal, I think. But yeah, it's just it almost feels like an afterthought to me. This one, Mike. Yeah, it's like I don't know track eight or nine on the album, isn't it? You know, you're, kind of, <laughs> you're, you're, you're building towards you know the big. Um, you know, seven-minute epic that ends it and everything, but um, yeah, so it's like it feels like a filler goal in a way. You know, it needs to be there, but uh, <laughs> um, yeah, it is kind of like you know, skip a track you might skip. But uh, yeah, a couple of things about it. it's a really great ball in from McAteer. Um, actually, he would, you know, he would convert himself into a really useful wing back and a you know outlet on the right for Liverpool, and it's a tidy finish by Collymore as well, and. Yeah, quick word on Collymore, actually. So he had an awkward season, I think, in his first year at Liverpool because he, he came in with, I think he was the most expensive transfer in British history when he signed. Eight and a half million, five yeah, yeah. Million, yeah. And quite early on, had given an interview to 442 about, um, uh, it was to do with the way he was being used and the way he was being played. And he, he kind of intimated, I think, that Liverpool didn't really know what to what to do with him but um, yeah, I mean it's often forgotten about him that he's, oh, he's a fantastic player Collingall he really was you know mm. you know two-footed quick um, skillful just yeah he kind of had everything and, and worked really well with Fowler in this season actually there was one month I think January where they were joint player of the month each um, and you know he kept Ian Rush out of that team, and you know for a while before it, it kind of it's Scott will know more about it than me, but it, it kind of soured the relationship between Carly Moore and the the rest of the Liverpool squad. I think as time went on, but um, I think I think he still ended up scoring about sort of eighteen goals in his first season. It was, it was kind of in the shadow of Fowler a bit. So Fowler had this incredible season where I think he scored thirty six goals. And was young player of the year. We we're talking about Ferdinand being uh, player of the year earlier. So uh, yeah, Colly Moore's impact, I guess, was a, a little bit overshadowed. But um, obviously, as we'll get to, you know, he, he comes away with the uh, the most famous moment in the game. Shall we jump to that then? 
Anything to talk about in between that and then the end of this game that was so oft repeated? Uh, well, there's the plethora of chances between the uh, <laughs> between the the goal and the. Uh, sorry, I'll, I'll let Scott jump in in a minute. But there's uh, there's all it, well, there's a potential penalty. Bar- uh, Beresford brings down McManaman sort of right near the um, goal line, which through which through modern eyes might be a penalty. But I, I I wouldn't say then was because he takes man ball and everything it's it's one of the difficulties of doing these kind of retro games really is you have to take the lens of modern football off and mm, just mm. Rem- remember what was uh you know just generally accepted then um we talked about there were no farcical moments there's nearly a hilarious own goal by steve harry where he, he nearly shins one into the uh <laughs> top corner from a McManaman cross but it, it just flies wide um the big regrettable chance for newcastle i think is in the um I think it's about this 80th minute. Ferdinand gets one-on-one with Harkness. uh, Jinx to the left of him into the area and David James makes a brilliant point blank uh, save to keep him out. And uh, that's a chance that will be freighted with regret uh, for Newcastle um, come the end of the game. Does does John Barnes reawakening the the old magic as well run about? Minute 80, is it, when he suddenly dances into the box and bangs one and forces a save out of a Cerner check? Yeah, he nearly sort of replicates one of those great goals he got against QPR back in the, back in the 87, 88 season. Um, and it's, sort of, it's weird because there is, or there are, pl- that plethora of chances. Um but it just this seems to be a sort of grinding in inevitability that if something's going to happen, it now has to happen. It can't happen on eighty four minutes. It can't happen on eighty six minutes. It's got to happen at the very earliest ninety minutes, maybe eighty nine. <laughs> but you know, it needs that again for that narrative, the narrative purity of the whole thing. So both teams are trading chances. But after the the big one Mike talked about with um, Ferdinand v. James, there's this sort of basketball rhythm, but there's nothing clear-cut, mm. I would say, until dot, dot, dot. <laughs> <laughs> well, go on, Scott. You just dot, dot, dotted it. I'll let you pick it up. Well, all I'll say is I think I'm going to let, because it's just kind of a, even now, it's a bit of a emotional one for me. Um, what I will say that I thought about this this goal, the Collymore goal, after 92 minutes, settles it. All people seem to remember now is uh, Burns and Rush nearly getting in each other's way. Barnes, Andy hanging on for man of the match. <laughs> Barnes, Rush, Barnes. John Barnes. And then Barnes rolling the ball left Collymore. Collymore closing in! Collymore taking the touch, creaming it into the net and then running off like Roy Wilkins in the 1983 Cup final. And then this perfect semicircle. The best celebration, I think. Liverpool lead in stoppage time! But this is a great team goal. It's a really, really good length of the pitch team goal. And what it reminds me of 
it's almost like a negative version, and we mentioned them earlier, it's a negative version of the Carlo Alberto goal mm. in um, the 70 World Cup final. Because that goal starts deep on the left with a defender doing all manner of things that you wouldn't necessarily expect him to. Claudio Aldo. They work the ball up the left. There's a ball rolled to the right and it's creamed in. Well, taking Claudio Aldo's role um, for one evening only, ladies and gentlemen, John Scales. (laughs) (laughs) And, like, he he gets involved, you know, he drops a shoulder to... um, to go past someone, I'm trying to remember who he drops that shoulder to go past. Um, Ferdinand. Les Ferdinand, I think. And yeah. then he one-twos with Ian Rush before... And then his his sort of portion of the job's done, and he lays off to... Um, he lets sort of Rush and Barnes make their way up the, up the park. And they one-two about. And you're thinking, this is kind of... They've kind of overplayed this. <laughs> And again, it's it's that beautiful, it's almost like a theatrical beat where you're thinking, right, this is, they've tied themselves up in knots and then Barnes, like Pele, picks that killer pass, just rolled perfectly and it's it's swept home. Now, I'm not saying it's necessarily as skillful a goal as that famous Brazil goal. Oh, and I'm not saying that John Barnes is better than Pele. Although on another day we could have that argument. But it's a little centerile of... version of Brazil <laughs> yeah. 1970. Uh, yeah. But I think there's a lot of similarities. It's a very weird mirror image. It, it's it's more similar than you'd think. Um and of course it was just timed that like the all four roofs of the stadium just coptered away in different directions. And it was one of the yeah, it was um, it's a good goal. <laughs> <laughs> Cracking finish. Sorry, I went on about that far too long. No, not but, at all. Yeah. That was actually really funny that way before. <laughs> um, but a hell of a finish. Um, I suppose that the player you'd expect to do it, Mike, maybe. Uh, yeah, I mean, if well, it felt like everything then was destined to be settled by Robbie Fowler. <laughs> in that, yeah, in that particular true. month, yeah, that's true. but um, yeah, I mean, what a goal! It's it's the big claim. It's maybe it was one of the most evocative Premier League goals of all time. Um, in the second minute of injury time, well, one thing that adds a wonderful uncertainty to this is that come the end of the game, you know, they didn't hold a board up to say how long was left, so you didn't know when the game was going to end. It you were just in this kind of unknown hinterland between the 90th minute and the, the final whistle and and both teams needed to win and so so that kind of adds to the whole atmosphere and uh, I love the fact it's got the thumbprint of Russian Barnes on it you know they're both these players are into their 30s now and you know you know they're not really going to be around that team for too much longer it's it's going to become about you know Fowler and McManaman and Redknapp and and Rob Jones and you know uh, so they have that, oh, you know, that kind of last great moment. I guess I think Rush actually be left on a free transfer that summer. I know Barnes stuck around for a, a little while longer, but yeah, the fact that those two are involved in it is 
It's great. And there's a lovely... If, Did actually, Rush if you got a Newcastle on that free transfer? Was it Leeds first? Uh, Leeds United he went to. Right. Yeah. And um, actually, if you... So when Barnes... When they almost trip over each other in the box and Barnes has got the ball, if you pause it at that point, actually, it's... I mean, Scott's talking about, you know, the goal being uh, vaguely reminiscent of Carlos Alberto. Barnes at that point, he's got Batty and the entire Newcastle back four within about 10 yards of him in a circle. It's it's vaguely (laughs) reminiscent of that, you know, Maradona shot against um, Belgium after the, you know, the walls collapse. And to his right, Rush is screaming for it, I think. Um, I think Fowl is screaming for the ball. And then he plays it out to the left. And it's, yeah, Carlos Alberto does arrive off. So you think, what's Barnes seen over there? And it's, yeah, it is Collymore in this acres of space. Um, so much time to think about it that it, it would be very easy to make a complete bollocks of this. But his first touch with his right foot is perfect to set it. And then he just absolutely lashes it into the near post. And I remember as soon as he opened his body up to hit that, you just thought this is, because it's so perfect, you know, the, the timing everything about it is there's an almost an inevitability about that going in and that's not me saying that in hindsight because it actually did go in i I remember where i was in you know in the club we were watching it everyone sort of rose as as he controlled that ball it was a a wonderful moment of um inevitability as i say that it was going to go in and then to see him you know screaming off to the uh left celebrating Obviously, the whole stadium just goes off. You have the shot of Keegan slumped. It's um, it's just yes, yeah, one of the most evocative Premier League images. That goal, I think, it's uh, it's just brilliant. Yeah, you talk about remembering where you were. I was I was home from uni for the Easter, obviously, because it's this time of year, and um, we um, I was watching it in my mate's bedroom, and one of my mates is a Liverpool fan. My other mate was a United fan and my other mate was actually a Tranmere fan, but his family were all Scousers, so he wanted Liverpool to win. And so it was kind of, I was the only one shouting for Newcastle to to win. And I remember all three of them just going absolutely fucking bananas and me thinking, oh shit, I'm going to have to phone my dad, aren't I, after this? Because he'll be... And um, But I remember that whole... And then after this, we'll talk about what happens afterwards, but I just remember this whole time just being an incredibly emotional time to be watching football. I know it sounds like a really trite thing to say, but I think it comes back to that point about what this team, this game, these teams, and then subsequently the Newcastle team over the whole season did for football, really. But yeah, it's, um, I can remember exactly. I can almost smell the bedroom as I'm talking about it now, not just because it was a teenage boy's bedroom and therefore, well, not quite teenage, 20 years old. Yeah. Yeah, so, uh, you know, experiences of watching sport, Scott. Yeah, well, I mean, I remember the watching the game quite vividly because it, um, it was the night before my dad's funeral. Um, wow. So there was quite a sort of, uh, yeah, there was quite a sort of heightened atmosphere Um Everyone round, everyone round the house, all the family. <clears throat> but me and um, me and my uncle George through the through the back room watching the game. And when Collymore scored, we were both, ah, yeah, it's amazing. And you sort of then suddenly realise, you know, that some people understand that sort of um, just the therapeutic 
uh, effect that sport can have at certain <laughs> points in your life. And some people get that and some people don't. So, you know, there are a few people in the house thinking, well, you know, it's a bit weird him shouting and celebrating when, you know, it's the it's the funeral tomorrow. But like my, my uncle George got it exactly. And my mum did as well. When uh, She sort of came through and said, oh, what happened? And I said, oh, you know, like Liverpool won. And, uh, you know, probably said something quite um, emotional, like, you know, that would have been dad, like, you know, just doing one last thing for me. And I remember she was saying, oh, that's nice. But also, oh, he missed it. Yeah. Uh, and I, th that kind of broke my heart a bit. And it was just like, but, but, but she understood it as well. Um, and, you know, it was a it was a really beautiful moment. And that's not something that I, because I obviously have that link with the game that I can't break. Um, but it's not something that makes me sad. Um, you know, it was a it was a great moment and it makes me think of my dad. And you know, and I I love that about sport, that sort of randomness. Mm. Um something like, you know, if it wasn't for you know, John Scales channeling his inner Cordo Aldo <laughs> and setting up the Carlo Carlos Alberto you know tribute goal um you know i wouldn't have that moment and i'm sure a lot of other people think think that about the same goal for various different reasons in a world. lovely stuff so yeah. the game is won it's now out of newcastle's hands uh, which is the big killer i suppose plus just a huge disappointment of losing a game like that i suppose Keegan comes out pretty much comes out punching uh, <laughs> says um, about <laughs> his own style not not that he's angry about anything we, we lost nothing in defeat here today um, we shall certainly go on playing this way despite what people think we shall certainly go on playing the same sort of players because that's why we bought them and if we don't win anything so be it so to those that would say perhaps you should have shut up shop earlier you say no we carry on playing this way yeah or I go there's no, no question the other way. <laughs> That's so Keegan-esque, isn't uh -huh. it? Yeah. I'm going to walk. If it, <laughs> I love it. He's always threatening. He was impetuous and him. stubborn all in yeah. one big ball. Little ball, yeah. actually, wasn't he? Yeah, I love Keegan for that. Um, and when he would have made these comments, this is in the immediate aftermath of losing a match in quite heartbreaking circumstances. And, you know, the... The last time we'd seen him before this interview, he was, as I said, slumped over the advertising hoarding. Um, you know, just just devastated at losing that way. But I, I love the defiance of that interview because um, they, they just they just take taken part in something pretty incredible. And Keegan's takeaway isn't that they'd lost it; it's it's how well they played and that that yeah that kind of. Um, defiant streak in him to say, well, we're going to keep playing this way. And if anyone asks me to change, uh, I'll go. And <laughs> I, th I think, you know, he's just quite emotional because he's just lost the game and stuff. But, uh, and you can call it uncompromising. You might say that that's not what made him a great manager or whatever, but it's, um, I don't know. I do, I do have that uncompromising. You know, when it's, a, when it's your principle being attacking football as well, mm. I just think... Thank God, there's people like Kevin Keegan, you know. Yeah, and he's getting his, he's getting his kind of arguments in early, isn't he? Because he knows what's coming. He knows he's going to get yeah. pelters for the next week in all the papers as it would have been then, of course. 
all the papers or, yeah. or maybe hold the back page or something, Scott, where, it's, where they'll just be saying, oh, this is just more evidence of what a fundamentally unsound team they are or or something along those lines it would have been, wouldn't it? And he's just like, you know what, piss off, not interested. This is the way I play football and and this is the way I do things. Yeah, fair play to him. Well, yeah, but, I mean, you have to say, I mean, it was, it was so, Scott, it, it's just, it's one or two chances from, you know, those questions being put to runs, really, isn't it? Yes, yeah. um, yes. You know, Evans came out at the end and said, "Oh, it's kamikaze football, and it's um, we can't keep playing that way." But I think it's easier to do that interview when you've come out uh, on the winning side. I think. Uh, I think that's true, though. I think it comes to something when you've got someone like Roy Evans. Even he can realise, yeah, this is kind of kamikaze football. Yeah. Whereas Keane's threatening, yeah, to down tools if it, if it, you know, things don't don't stay the same. But I, I, I wrote a piece at this, like um, this match years ago, the Guardian, and I sort of argued at the end, and you know, to just say that in his managerial guise, he's painted as a loser by losers and it's the sort of people who know the price of everything the value of nothing and he didn't win a major trophy but medals aren't aren't the end all and his legacy was one of the premier league's most memorable teams one of the premier league's most fondly remembered title races the premier league's greatest and most significant ding-dong battle and i think you know that's special you have to be special to do that and yeah, history's going to, you know, it'll be good to him. I think history is already good to him. We've sort of got past the snark, I think. That, yeah. You know, when he was England manager and, you know, maybe he did, his ambition did sort of, um, did sort of outpace his, his managerial ability. But, you know, so what? What I, what I kind of like about Keegan's reaction here is that at least he's owning what's happening. Roy Evans almost talks like it was out of his control and there was nothing, it was this weird thing was happening. Whereas Keegan is basically saying, this is how I play football. If you don't like it, I'll be going. Whereas Roy Evans is saying, you know, it's great for the fans, but this could have killed me and Kevin off. It's like, well, you're saying that as if it's like a runaway lorry that you, you know, don't have the keys to, you know. It's kind of, it's really strange, you know. He's like, oh, we've gone behind, we've gone ahead, they've lost it late on, it's mad, isn't it? It's almost like he's throwing his hands in the air. Oh, isn't it crazy, you know. He's like, well, you're the ones who's coached this team, Roy, you know. At least Keegan is, is coming out and coming out to bat for it in one way or another. Yeah. I mean, and you it's probably worth saying as well that these two teams they weren't involved in game every weekend. I mean, it, it was it was something pretty special, and yeah, you know, it it needed one to bring it out of the other, and vice versa to um, to get that game. I think, and uh, you know, it 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 didn't happen in you know in the previous two meetings between the two sides. We'll come on to discuss. There was another four three between the two a year mm. later, but that, that was a very very different game. Mm. That definitely um, went more to the high to fast end, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, there was just something about about this game where it just there was an early fuse lit, and you know, well, also no back, any water uh, in, on it. But. You know, in the background there was or hovering above or something. There was Manchester United. It was Fergie. Mm. Um, there was Cantona who kept carving out these one nil victories. 
and it was sort of begin. You was there was still hope for both Liverpool and Newcastle, but it was real last chance stuff because you knew United were going to drop many more points. And I think, as Mike said, they only was it, they lost Saints, and that was it. I mean, it was a hell of a running they went on. Mm. And that's kind of the other thing people talk about Newcastle throwing things away, which, you know, they, well, I mean, you can't deny it on, on one level, but like, United were relentless. And they had pretty much no room for error. And, uh, and you know, just came up on the rail. And, yeah, it was a, it was a brilliant title win. But 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 it's weirdly like you know United, especially in the nineties, have got loads of stories to tell. And as good as this, you know, this team won double, and and it's you know it's Cantona's return, and it's the class of ninety two coming to the fore, and all all of this stuff. But weirdly, it still doesn't feel as though this one is United's story to tell. It's Newcastle's really, I think, this season. But I may be wrong about that, but I'm sure some United fans or vehemently disagree, but um, they didn't. Newcastle didn't win it, but it's their season. I mean, ultimately, and of the last eight games, Newcastle only managed to win four, which is not is is arguably not championship form, is it? Yeah. You know, and I, I, you know, if you're going to be bald about it, but like we've said many times over, we won't repeat it now. There's more to it than that, isn't there? Otherwise, Keegan's resigning. So, um, yeah, I mean, they did. Um, they did take it to the last day, and yeah, you know, yeah, they, yeah. they came. They came second with seventy-eight points, which would have won the league the following season. Yeah, was the points point. total with which Wenger won the double with ninety-seven, ninety-eight? You know, so people would sniff at a seventy-eight point season now. I think, um, but back then, that was incredible. A very impressive total back then. I mean, the the real killer defeat for um, Newcastle was, uh, I think, five days ago on the Monday they lost to Blackburn. Yeah, I remember watching that game. Park and that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, the Fenton goals. Yeah, so that that's what really threw it into United's uh, lap, really. And then, um, but they they even to win. They won three in a row, I think. And then they had the they had the one one with Forest. Went points ahead of them, and that's when Keegan, you know, the rant, uh, love it, and that felt that like more of a heartbreaker of, of a game as well. That the Forest one, actually, as well. I remember at the time that being the one where you were just like, "Oh, for fuck's sake!" Because Forest, you know, were okay, but it was like an Ian Wone screamer. I think from from memory, it just felt mm. like it was just that. I know it went to the last day, but that just kind of felt like that's when you knew, you know. Warren had uh, had formed for this. He did that to Liverpool back in '91. Sc- like scored a long distance screamer to think it was it was either a draw or a Forest win that did for Liverpool, and you know the season of Tony Adams in prison and all that stuff. So that's kind of two. <laughs> two teams he's like sort of um two clubs broken the hearts of that's probably, a, probably that, that's a niche opta thing isn't it players who have ended <laughs> title races with left-footed screamers <laughs> from middling teams 
Uh, yeah, so here's an interesting one. Kevin Keegan received a fax from Seth Blatter after this game, complimenting him on his uh, positive attitude you bring to the game, said Sap. It's a good job, Sep. It's a good job he didn't get his faxes mixed up, isn't he? Isn't it? According to a <laughs> ha ha ha. I'm here all week. Um, so Liverpool lose their next game at Coventry, which you've already mentioned. Um, let's talk about the games. In, and we know how the season ended, I think, now, don't we? And there'll, there'll be a longer discussion about that in another episode, I guess. Often talked about as the greatest Premier League game ever. Is it, Mike? Well, it's, I guess... If we're just talking about the Premier League era uh, from 92 on, um, which I, I don't mind doing, but it, it, we, don't, we are saying yeah. it, is just, it, is ju- it is just that era. So um, obviously there's, you know, 104 years of league football <laughs> yes, um, played before then, um, as, as, as Scott's book there brilliantly covers. But uh, yeah, for this... Well, I guess the question is, well, what would you put up against it, I suppose? Um, I would say possibly United and Arsenal from 2005, mm. um, which is again between two teams that didn't win the title and finished um, finished second and third, but who that, that came from a different place, I think. That was the culmination of a rivalry that had been going on for... Uh, well, since Wenger had turned up in um, in England, basically, and uh, but it, it was Chelsea that stepped over the both of them to win the title. In the end. I know, Rob's got a lovely line about it. He said, it, "You know, it's a game that um, what did he say? Uh, it was worth nothing, but meant everything." Hmm. So that would be one. But I would, I would, I would, as a pure sort of game of football, and, and as a kind of as something that's got a cultural value to the Premier League, if that's a, the right phrase. I, I think it probably is when you weigh it all in. I mean, um, I think you can draw a line back. I think I, I might have said this on another, as I'm re- repeating myself, but uh, I think you can draw a line, but all the modern hype about the Premier League, about, you know, both, to, you know, that all that kind of uh, marketing that isn't really true about, oh, no game's ever dead. You can't, you can't be certain of anything in the Premier League. Mm. Both teams will go for it all the time. All that kind of stuff. I mean, I think this game kind of encapsulates all that. And because it's between two such memorable teams as well, because of the quality of it, I mean, we've seen other 4-3s down the years yeah. and 4 alls and things like that, but they are quite often, you know, basketball farces. Or they're filled with that. I just thought this was a really high quality game between, you know, two really celebrated, uh, you know, attacking teams. And yeah, I, I would I would probably put it first, just ahead of United and Arsenal in two thousand and five. And I would say what one or one of the many things football has lost in the uh, the time of COVID is that I thought. Um, the current or current-ish Liverpool and Man City teams were building towards something similar because they, they've had a lot of really good games in the last uh, four years, but especially as Liverpool were closing in on the title and there, there was a game, I mean, they did play it, but they didn't play it without any fans and it, it didn't have any consequence by that point because Liverpool had won the league. But um, yeah, I, I, I always got the sense that Liverpool were building up to something pretty spectacular. 
because that was building as a rather it was looking like it would have some kind of showdown, whether it's in a league game or in a Champions League game. I always felt it was building to something, um, you know, quite. Can we, you know, we 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 may not get to see that now. I don't think. Um, but uh, yeah, that's a rather long-winded way of saying uh, yes. I would I would put the four-three between Liverpool and Newcastle. Um, <laughs> As, as the greatest Premier League game, because I, I think it um, it represents something about that era and those memes and, and you know, and a time in English football as it was, you know, incredibly exciting and in flux and all that kind of stuff. I think that's probably fair enough. This is where Scott opens his book and says, well, actually, the greatest game in uh, the top <laughs> tier is, that, is from... Um... <laughs> No, I'd I'd go with this absolutely. Um, just because I, I mean I won't re- repeat everything Mike's just said, but maybe some of it. Um, but no, just the fact that it had this you know high quality basketball brilliance, two amazing teams. I think it was the it was the first time, or it was maybe the first flowering of when the Premier League's kind of started becoming a soap opera. And I mean mm. that in a good sense. I'm not trying to like belittle it. The fact that you know managers were feuding, there were all these different emotions. There were clubs with different, um, you know, wants and needs that had to be sated, um, and it all just came together in this amazing, and at just the right time. Well, it didn't feel forced. It didn't feel as I was driving it. It just. It sort of bloomed out of thin air. Um, this intense, weird, wonderful thing, <laughs> and yeah, it's. I think it's kind of handy that neither team won the league as well. Yeah, because it felt it would have slightly, slightly soured the balance of the whole thing. Like both teams ended the season unhappy. But they both had this thing that they took part of, and they'll always be, they'll always be theirs. Um, and yeah, just in the same way that we spoke of Socrates earlier, um, that Brazil '82 team is a much more beautiful thing, and that that campaign is a much more beautiful thing than the 2002 campaign for Brazil or 1994, because of that mix of like you know high concept and low farce <laughs> and <laughs> you know this had that as well and it was just it's just i don't know it's just spot on i'm i'm, I'm doing that chef's kiss thing now, <laughs> just so it's just like that yeah and i, I know think... it's i know it's the obvious one to say but i just can't see any way past it some things are obvious for a reason yeah, and I think that point you made, Scott, having gone through it again, with, you know, further on with hindsight, that point that every minute there's something happening and most of it is of a quality that is notable or has some, you know, yeah. import to what's happening um, is is what really separates it, I think. Um, yeah, a wonderful game, a wonderful conversation. Uh, thank you, Mike. Thanks, mate. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And we will speak to you all in our next episode whenever it rolls around again. Take care and goodbye.
Sports Social Podcast Network.